right, folks, episode seven of the Summit Up podcast for March of 2023. And boy, was it a doozy. It went slightly longer than we had originally planned, but there's a lot of information to cover. Uh, as always, Jason and I recapped the Cyber AB Town Hall for March, most of which was dedicated to questions and answers. So we spent a significant amount of time going through the interesting questions answered and unanswered in order to provide our insights and for the first time ever a guest on the podcast the great and powerful ryan bonner ceo and founder of defcert stopped by to give his perspective on some of the cui questions that were submitted during the ab town hall that lined up directly with his research and presentation at cs2 huntsville uh, we also talked about Microsoft going through the Joint Surveillance Assessment Program and uh, achieving their 110 score as a result of that, as well as the implications downstream from Microsoft tools, services, and customers. There was a GAO report that came out that was very interesting that talked about the impact or lack of impact of election years on rulemaking and why that would be interesting for people watching and waiting on the CMMC rule as 2024 draws closer and closer. We also talked about the very peculiar issuance of a rule by DOD concerning the use of the SPRS, Supplier Risk Management System, in the evaluation of supplier risk that seemingly omitted cybersecurity as a category of risk used to evaluate suppliers. Well, what's the story behind that? Why might that be? Is this a signal that cybersecurity is no longer a priority for the department? Or is this just a weird peculiarity resulting from rulemaking? We get deep into that topic as well. And then finally, we recap our takeaways from CS2 Huntsville at the beginning of March, the ninth event in the now longest running uh, cybersecurity conference series focused specifically on helping DOD contractors with their compliance obligations and security under DFARS, NIST, and CMMC. Two folks from DOD, Stacey Bosjanic, as well as DIBCAC Director Nick Del Rosso, gave excellent presentations that were very insightful and heavy on the Q&A. So we give our takeaways. You can always check out the relevant clips that we will be posting from those two sessions and other sessions from CS2 on this YouTube channel, which just crossed 2,000 subscribers. So thank you everyone for liking and subscribing. It makes a huge difference. And if you like the content, please let us know in the comments and be sure to like and subscribe. Thanks. Coming in hot, bro. Coming in hot. Nothing like congressional hearings to uh, get Man, you. Man, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Um, it is, I mean, we'll get to the congressional hearing part, but if you, I know it sounds crazy, right? But if you read the NIST publications page by page, and if you listen to congressional testimony from the DOD, everybody's favorite the, hobby, the, the world gets a lot smaller very quickly. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, uh, isn't there like March madness or something going on this month? Is that, is that baseball? No, that's it's definitely basketball. Uh, the only March Madness I'm concerned about is the fact that there was multiple uh, congressional testimonies by DOD throughout abs March. Absolute that's, madness in the month of that's March. That's the real madness. That's the real madness. Place your bets, folks.
All right. It's it's the end of March, man. So uh, every month there's a AB town hall, and uh, we had an AB town hall for the month of March. So I guess we'll dive right into the recap. Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, usually you have these loaded agendas, have different subjects and things like that. And so one of the things that we've grown to appreciate the most is when they take more time and, and give more effort. Um, and dedicate it solely to answering questions and, you know, a, a it's Q&A an eternal section. problem, whether that it's not unique to the AB, we just ran our CS2 conference. It's, I mean, there's never enough time for questions, right? And, and, even, and usually the questions are more, more questions and then it just builds on. And, but that's what webinars you want, right? that are dedicated to questions don't have enough time for questions. So I'm, I'm glad they're starting to do that more often. Uh, and then, you know, we've always got questions that we find very interesting that we'll dive into as well. Right. So at the beginning of every AB Town Hall, and I know that you've probably noticed this as well, Jacob, we want to start this with saying that everything that's represented in this town hall is uh, we speak on intent. We're not an authoritative DOD. We're not speaking for the DOD, but we do speak to, in some scenarios, the intent of the DOD. And I think that'll be very important to understand throughout the entire episode yeah. um, and, and throughout the entire rulemaking process, right? And yeah. as, as the AB is delivering information, um, you need to understand that until a rule is pinned on paper, signed and executed, that this is just speaking on the intent. So they intend yeah, I mean, to make these things happen. Right. Somebody might not like them and they may change down the road, but this is, you know, and, and, you know, uh, to be fair, looking back on the history of CMMC, this was a disclaimer that the early AB never made. They never qualified their statements saying, you know, the actual disclaimer they say is nothing that we say is the official position or policy of the federal government. We are not involved in rulemaking. And then the town hall starts. Uh, early AB used to make some very official sounding statements. And because this was very new for everybody, who was in charge of who and who held the conch shell and who had the speaking stick was not clear. And so that caused a lot of uh, statements to be interpreted as official policy, and that caused a lot of confusion and controversy early on in the in the uh, back in the day. Which I guess we can say now we've been doing this for a while. Um, but yeah, now they give that disclaimer at the one. So very important for everybody to remember. Probably a very key concept to understand the role that the AB plays in the ecosystem. They do not dictate policy. They do not shape policy. What they say is not policy. They are not involved in rulemaking, which will be relevant when we get into some of the questions that were asked. And it's tough to think that, so going into the first segment, uh, the welcome and the update of the ecosystem, uh, Matt Travis starts discussing things and, and you know, it's it's crazy to think that the national strategy is now a month old, right? Uh, we talked it about just, it last I mean, I feel like it episode. just came out. I mean, I feel like it just, it just came out. So, um, yeah, it was very interesting to hear Matt's thoughts. You know, uh, in the last episode, we had uh, sort of our view after the reading of the national cyber strategy, although... CMMC is not mentioned for probably various political and agency turf war reasons that are probably not all that important. Uh, the national cyber strategy and the CMMC regulatory program line up directly. And uh, Matt spent a few minutes sort of going over his view of the national cyber strategy in comparison to CMMC lined up very closely with what we said in episode six at the end of that episode. So I think it was uh it was great to see other people sort of reach that same conclusion because uh, I think it's um, I think it's a relatively clear conclusion if you give them both a close read. And I don't think that that's isolated to just us and just Matt. Um, you know, Matt Travis. I, I think that I've seen this 
actually, I know I've seen this on, on multiple occasions, people saying that you can see where it aligns. And then we talk about, um, you know, the, the harmonization of strategy, right? The harmonization of uh, yeah. regulations across the board that was spoke about. Um, and, and you put those things together and then you realize that everybody's interpreted in the same way, which is obviously a good thing because people can start moving forward. Yeah, so definitely. And there's, you know, uh, there, there was a lot of stuff that got jammed into the back half of March or even the last week of March that we'll probably have to carry over into another episode. There's hearings on regulatory harmonization. Other agencies are making moves. It seems like the, uh, the thaw out from the holidays, getting ready for new budget cycles and things like that is starting to really spin up how many of, uh, how many, hearings and, uh, and and documents are being published and things like that. So it's definitely accelerating uh, now that we're getting out of Q1. So we'll probably have to carry some of that over into the next episode. But yeah, I feel like that thread is going to continue to get pulled of how similar or dissimilar is CMMC to other agency efforts. And just like with NIST standards, if you take a look under the hood, uh, it's kind of all the same. And so the the wild and wacky crazy quilt of regulatory policy uh, as far as cybersecurity goes is pretty varied from agency to agency but the world is also a lot smaller than i think it seems at first once you get through the dense government rhetoric and and things like that um we're all just kind of uh admiring the same problem from the perspective of different agencies so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out i think the the, the headline that I saw was that they plan to release the implementation plan for the national cyber strategy sometime in June. So obviously we'll keep our eye on that, uh, but it's something to look for. I, I think it's kind of silly that we have separate documents for the strategy and how you implement it. I don't, I don't really think that that's how stuff would normally work, but that's how the government does it. So we'll talk about it probably in early summer, whenever that implementation plan comes out. Well, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of similar to a, a NIST publication, right? You get one, sure. you, you, right? You get one that tells you what the strategy is or what the outcomes are. And then you get another that's pretty much the, the IKEA instructions. How do you for, know? For, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, um, right. I, exactly. I mean, I guess it's par for the course. And then yeah. um, one of the other in a very popular and reoccurring segment of the town halls is the Keiko Corner, where Kyle Gingrich comes on. And provides updates. No longer the Keiko update. It is now the Keiko Corner, which everyone likes a good dose of alliteration. So I appreciate the name change. Yeah, I I think it's catchy and gets people interested, right? It's provocative. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they're lined up. (laughs) Um, But one of the the hottest button topics has been the suitability requirements for CCAs, right? You -hmm. you go through the, the testing process to become a CCA. You pass the examination. And there was the snake diagram that was released a couple months ago. And uh, a part of that snake diagram and, and the pathway to Candyland, um, you had to uh, meet suitability requirements. And that suitability, one of those requirements was um, that you had to participate in three assessments to be deemed suitable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, prior to be being a full-blown an know, idea, no Pinocchio, an, an idea un- unique to the world of CMMC certifications, like we've talked about prior, certifications like... Uh, the CISA and other auditing and GRC type certifications don't have a prerequisite to have actually been involved with a assessment. So it's a nifty idea, but uh, somewhat complicated to roll out, right? Right. But if you were one of those people who were a provisional assessor that, that got on this from the ground floor, 
Um, now they're saying that the suitability requirements have already been met and they were met in the determination of you being eligible to be a PA. And so that puts a, a great spot for assessors to kind of be streamlined through um, yeah. and, and us to have live CCAs, obviously. Um, but what it does is it puts it puts the people that are not PAs at a disadvantage because obviously they still have to go through the three CMMC assessments to meet suitability. Unfortunately, I mean, there's been what, 17 CMMC assessments done thus far. Yeah. So um, th that obviously is something that's going to have to be remediated. And they think that uh, they have a strategy in place to develop an accelerated program for the non-provisional assessors uh, to mm -hmm. qu quickly get through those requirements. Yeah, and I think that's one that's probably going to be uh, worked hand in hand with DOD, obviously, because the assessments, you know, getting them in on possibly getting them in on joint surveillance assessments is something, you know, a call that DOD is going to make. It seems like they have a good, uh, they know it's a problem and they're working it. I think, you know, the idea that you're going to maybe grandfather in provisional assessors as CCAs, I mean, that's not a hill that I'm going to die on either way. We need more assessors. Mm -hmm. So if the first round kind of, I mean, this is, I remember when I was in the Navy, the job that I had in the Navy was new. It, it only had existed for like five years. And so how do you create a, uh, a, a, a system of all of the ranks that you need across the enlisted ranks of a new job in the Navy if no one's had that job? So you've got E9s and E8s all the way down to E3s and E2s. Uh, who have other jobs in the Navy, you get new people into boot camp who are going to be E1s, E2s, E3s. Where are their managers at, right? Where are the chiefs? Where are the senior chiefs? Where are the master chiefs? And so they do cross-rating. And so sometimes when you are cross-rating from a job in the Navy, in the Navy, jobs are called ratings. Uh, in the Navy, sometimes when you cross-rate from a job that has too many people and it's hard to get promoted, you might cross right over into a new job that is either undermanned or brand new, and you get what we called colloquially a push button promotion. So that's a very DOD style of, of working a problem. You sort of have these people who have experience doing other kind of similar things or very similar things that can vary. And when you stand up a new job, essentially, you have to cross-rate them in, push-button some of them into a promotion, if you will. Um, and so that that doesn't seem that strange to me, having been you know, enlisted for so long. That seems like a very DOD solution to this problem. So, uh, I think it's another scenario where common sense has prevailed, right? Uh, common sense comes in and says, hey, you performed assessments. Hey, you've demonstrated that you understand the CMMC, you know, the way CMMC is supposed to go. Um, and you put two and two together, you've established that, and then you yeah, at least have some assessors in, in, in the ecosystem now. So. Yeah, and I'm not, yeah, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> you know, the people who didn't get PA have to do some, you know, they have to sit on assessments and the PAs didn't. I mean, uh, you know, two years from now, three years from now, I, no one will even remember that that was probably an issue. So, I, yeah, I don't, I don't see where that would be an issue at all. Mm -hmm. And then in the coming soon section of the Kago Corner. Obviously, we are getting rolling on the CCPs and the CCAs, getting uh, you know populated into the ecosystem, and now we're going to focus on the CCI, which is the Certified CMMC Instructors, right? Yeah. So yeah. So as a provisional instructor, I'm very interested to see what the blueprint for the training and exam looks like for the certified instructor. Um, and so Kyle said that that was probably expected, uh, you know, in weeks, maybe a month or two. 
So probably by summer, we should have a better idea of what that looks like. And I'd say probably by the fall. I don't know. She didn't speculate, but I would imagine by the fall-ish, Q3, Q4, um, people will start to be able to uh, look for CCI stuff. I don't know what the pipeline will be to go from zero to CCI, um, but going from PI, provisional instructor, to CCI is probably going to be some solution the way they had it if you were a provisional assessor into the CCA and CCP exams. But they're working it. I mean, they're, they're uh, I, you know, the, the part of the caveat at the town hall that we left off was nothing that we say is official from the AB. They said nothing that we say is official policy. We are not involved in rulemaking. However, the thing that Matt adds at the end of that is we're not waiting on rulemaking to foster the ecosystem. And that's really what the town hall is all about. And uh, Keiko Corner quick updates, um, you know, sort of prove that out, right? They're coming up with solutions for PA to CCA. They are coming up with CCI stuff around the corner. I mean, they're, you know, they're spinning all the plates here. And that's the last step in the shedding of the P's, the provisional status of any of the credentialed staff, right? So we knew yeah. that that was coming. That was the intent from the get-go, not the DOD's intent, the AB's intent from the get-go right. is to have this provisionary program. And then once everything got up and rolling, let's shed that off. And, right. and now you we're gotta, moving away yeah, from that. You gotta, yeah, the Pokemon have to evolve eventually, right? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, pour one out for the provisional status of the program, the provisional status of the certs. And eventually it will just be a footnote in some dense, lengthy YouTube video that we probably put out on the history of CMMC certifications or something. I choose you, CMMC. <laughs> so there's Q&A in every town hall, like always. And there were some interesting questions because there was more time allocated for people to submit them. AB can't always get to all of them. So we kind of grouped them into categories that seemed interesting. And there were several questions that were submitted about joint surveillance assessments. So these are the interim assessments while we're waiting on official CMMC rulemaking to complete that are a, a assessment run jointly between DCMA DIBCAC auditors and CMMC C3PAO organizations. Okay. And so they sort of borrowed from the uh, DCSA world this term joint surveillance and they run these assessments jointly. We talked about this on the last episode that those are not free because you have to pay your C3PAO to go with them. They're just sort of getting uh, the omni-domni approval of, of being run because they're being run with a DOD team. Okay. So some of the questions that came in from joint surveillance, some people asked, you know, basically what is the value of going through joint surveillance if it is not a guarantee? Somebody asked, is there any guarantee that the certification will convert to an official CMMC certification once rulemaking is passed and implemented. Someone else said, if we don't know if DOD will accept the joint surveillance assessments, then they pose a risk to OSCs. So what value do they present? And somebody else said, why would anyone spend money on joint surveillance assessment uh, assessments now if there's no guarantee that they will be usable or applicable post rulemaking? So... Stacey Bostjanik has said this multiple times, most recently at CS2 Huntsville earlier in March. And yeah, there is no guarantee that your uh, score that is generated from your joint surveillance assessment will automatically be converted into a CMMC level two certification. However, what she always says is the intent of the department is that that will be the case. And so 
They can't say that that is the policy and it is guaranteed because if it turns out to not be true and the rule comes out and then they told people, then there's legal issues. And so that's why they'll never say it is a guarantee. You have to wait for the rule to come out. But that they, they I mean, she's been saying that for 18 months, that that is the intent of the department. So and she's not the only one saying it. No, so of course not. Anybody yeah, that course. you ask the question, that's what their answer is. They're not saying it. Yeah. They're so. Not, yeah. I mean, is it a guarantee? It's not a guarantee. Is it the overwhelming intent of the department? Yes. So from that perspective, right? I mean, it's a risk because you're, you know, you're laying out the funds in order to go through the assessment. And typically, like we talked about last time, those assessments are quite a bit more expensive than people were anticipating. They're not usually, from what we've heard, they're not six figures, but they're, you know, Thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars could could be. I mean, you know, the, it's a very small sample size, and a lot of the organizations that have gone through joint surveillance so far have been very big. But it's you know, it it's not free by any means. So you have to sort of weigh, you know, is it worth it to try to lay out the money, possibly get an automatic L two certification now, and not have to your your three year clock. I mean, really, the value proposition that the DoD is saying is that your three-year clock for recertification won't start until the rule becomes effective. So if you did it now and you add another year to the rule coming out or however long, plus three years, you may not have to actually get recertified for five years, potentially. Uh, and that's, you know, you don't have to worry about changes to 800-171. You don't have to worry about new stuff in the rule. So, you know, for some people, it makes a lot of sense. So we talked about better positioning companies like that do it now that, you know, implementing it with the the R2 requirements and doing it now allows them to better plan and uh, adjust once R3 comes out, if there's any additional requirements. Yeah, I mean, it's a good, I mean, there's, there, there is a case for it. And if you don't believe the DOD or you don't think that's going to work, then don't do it. Right. I mean, it's not, it's then, you know, don't do it. I think that it's pretty uh, pretty clear that they are that the, out the everything in the rule and everything's going to happen. The NIST one seventy one standard is going to increase. There's going to be a rush at the door to try to get in line for assessments. So there's a good chance that you might be stuck in that line for quite a while. And so um, you know there is a case to be made that it's worth uh, making the bet that the department is going to be able to uh, sort of shift those from. DIBCAC high scores to CMMC L2 certifications, but that's, you know, that is not a guarantee. Now, what's interesting, and we're going to talk about Nick Del Rosso, DIBCAC director at CS2, gave an awesome presentation and update from when we last heard from him at CS2 DC in July. Uh, Something that he said was companies that go through DIBCAC high assessments uh, score better uh, they have a higher chance of getting a of, a of a 110 score. And we'll dive into the details later. But essentially, he said, for those companies who got DIBCAC high assessments, which are based off what we've heard from DOD, typically the companies that will be expected to get CMMC level three requirements, right? Uh, for those companies that DIBCAC showed up and knocked on their door to do an in-person high confidence assessment against all 320 objectives in 171A, Nick said about 10 to 15% of them actually had the 110 score that they claimed. Whereas after they went through the assessment and they got the feedback from DIBCAC, what DIBCAC calls assistance from DIBCAC, they were able to put stuff on a POAM, come up with a plan, remediate those open items, update their score. After the assessment, 
the number of companies with a perfect 110 was like 50 to 60%. So if you're able to work with DIBCAC assessors walking through 171A, your 110 score is real, right? Like your chances of having the real score goes up. And so if you want to know what your actual score is and you want guarantees and you just want your CMMC certification to be a formality, if you even have to do it, if you get grandfathered into the CMMC certification, then the joint surveillance program makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, as we start posting clips and stuff from Nick's talk uh, at CS2 Huntsville, people should keep that in mind where, you know, the only way that you can actually get a DIBCAC assessment from DOD assessors themselves against these requirements is if you're a company that the DOD pegged is probably needing CMMC level three, which if you haven't heard from them by now, you are probably not going to hear from them or you do joint surveillance. If you don't do either one of those two things, you don't get a DIBCAC assessment. I would imagine that the companies that are getting these high assessments or that have been pegged already and notified already aren't the type of companies that don't have anything in place and that are already yeah. like have measures of this going forward. So um, it's yeah. no surprise to see that the scores are faring much better for these companies, um, just because I think that there's a, a definitely a level of maturity that exists within those environments. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a case for it. It's not a guarantee, <clears throat> but, you know, listen to what Nick had to say in his presentations and then, uh, you know, make that business decision accordingly. All right. What do you think of CS2, man? I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I, I think that the team is continuing to get dialed in on how events like that function. And it was just, a, it was a lot of fun seeing you guys do your thing and being a part of it up on the stage. I, I think that, um, you know, that the, the questions are getting smarter, the, the audience is getting smarter. People are thinking about the sort of like the next evolution of, what this looks like and mm. it's it's fun to watch uh you know everyone in the crowd sort of uh start to think about what comes next yeah it's funny that you say that because i we've seen the same thing in you know whether it's webinars or in-person events uh to use everyone's favorite cmmc vocabulary word there seems to be a distinct bifurcation yeah yeah bifurcation in the the world out there that's occurring and it is sort of the group of people who know what's going on, they know that it's real, they know that it's happening, and they have like either been moving towards it or they're almost done. You know, they would be the early adopters two or three years ago. And so there's this cohort of people who are like, what's next? What's next? What are we adding to 171? What's next? What's next? You know, where are we going from here? And then you have a maybe larger cohort, but a also distinctive group that has, that is not that, right? They have not started. They don't necessarily know if it's happening or they don't believe that it's happening for whatever reason, or they are under the misunderstanding that they have to wait for the rule to be done to get started. And so, you know, we've seen in some of the questions that come in, in-person events, online events, um, that sort of split where you have like very, very entry-level questions, I guess you would call them, and then sort of very advanced informed questions. Um, so I would, I would agree with that observation. CMC yeah. There's... He was definitely, you know, sort of leading the charge there as far as pushing the limit, especially some of the talks that you've given, which are always awesome and get great feedback. Um, but yeah, man, we this, wanted to have this you on. This one was good. This one was really good. 
Yeah, it was pretty great. And and it's timely because we wanted to have you on because some of the questions that were submitted to the AB Town Hall seemed right up your alley. So uh, oh, if you wouldn't right. mind humoring us. Um, so there's two questions that are kind of under the same category about CUI marking and why or why not. And you have a very interesting perspective on this. So the questions were, under what circumstances is an OSC independently authorized to identify CUI and market as such. But then the follow-on question was, why should an OSC independently identify CUI when DFARS assigns the accountability for, for doing so to the DOD? So one is, when do you do that? And the other one is, why would you even bother if this is DOD's job? Okay. Yeah. So let, let's maybe split this up a little bit, you know, as sort of a, a two-part answer, right? So the the first question a, was a bifurcated answer. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so, what would be the circumstances where an OSC is going to say this is CUI and market as such? Um, <laughs> so, in those types of situations, I would say that there's like a really easy answer that you can give, and you can sort of backload this with a more complicated answer. So, uh, on the front end, you know. Now that we have more unified guidance on CUI in the revised DOD instruction uh, 523024, uh, we're told that, hey, just to clarify, you know, all DOD distribution marked documents, B through F, are CUI. Are we clear? Okay, great. And so with that in mind, when you hear about preliminary markings described in the document, right, if you've got a contract deliverable, that hasn't been through a DOD review yet, because it's still with you, the contractor, they'll tell you just put, you know, DIST space B or space D or whatever mm -hmm. on that document and just ship it. So we already know that there's a mechanism by which a, a contractor would say, this is going to be CUI, slap a preliminary marking without a lot of the extra supporting detail on it and send it on its way. Mm -hmm. So there's at least one component there, right? But the the second part of that question, I don't know if it was the same from the same source or not, was talking about how uh, DFARS clearly assigns, you know, responsibility or accountability or whatever to the DOD to, to decide what is CUI. I would take issue with that assumption. And and yeah, here here's why. Hear, hear me out, okay? Um, DFARS provisions and solicitations when they come out say, hey, just so you know, uh, the DOD is going to lay claim to unlimited rights to whatever you send them unless you say otherwise. And then you have to negotiate yourself into a position where you're going to apply limitations on, tell me if this sounds familiar based on the definition of CUI, limits on dissemination or safeguarding requirements for your intellectual property, right? Sounds very so similar. If, very, very similar. So if you don't want your intellectual property to be published on the internet, or to be given to your competitor for a rebid, or to end up as a national stock number on FedMall, you have to do something about it. Right. So you you have to negotiate uh, data rights on the things you're going to send over. You negotiate on that pre-award, right? Right. And you have to put special markings on those documents, either government purpose rights saying, hey, you can't go commercialize this government for a certain period of time. Or limited rights, like, hey, just full stop. You call me before this goes anywhere. Right. 
Right. And, and, the, and the CUI markings uh, enable that sort of that, that system, right? Well, that, that's the realization people have to make. DODI 5230-24 says, hey, DOD personnel, you get a document marked that way as a contract deliverable, it qualifies mm-hmm. as CUI because of that marking. And it right. gets a, a defense category of proprietary business information. So in my experience, where it's the DIB generating most of the intellectual property, in government contracting, not the government, I would say that the DIB has the most accountability for making something CUI. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that that you know, like, and what we're talking about here is a separate part of the DFARS catalog, right? We're talking about rights and technical data, which is a separate clause or separate series of clauses. If your first exposure to DFARS was just seventy twelve, just the new CMMC rule in twenty twenty then you're sort of missing all of this extra context around what's going on. And even if you look at 7012 very closely, it's only like 13 paragraphs long. And I think half of them have to do with the obligations of the DOD for handling your data as a contractor when they have to protect it and report when there's an issue or a compromise or anything. It's not all about just what you do with their data. It's a, it's a two-way street. So yeah, I think that's a very valuable perspective. And your CS2 talk went into great detail on this topic. And so, you know, as we start to get some clips and content out from CS2 over time, we'll definitely make sure that we link back to that. But everyone should definitely reach out to you and check out that content because that's a very interesting and valuable twist that changes the the perspective on CUI. I, I think it's awesome. So I have a question that I just kind of came up with, Ryan, and I'm hoping that maybe you can jump in. Maybe it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. I see a lot of things that don't make sense on the show, so um, it's good to go. So if the DOD was giving or saying that they this is CUI and giving it to an OSC or giving it to an organization, the organization reserves a right to re- review it and say, this isn't CUI, mark it accordingly, right? And then the DOD makes a designation. So with information that's owned by the organization, when they're telling the DOD, this is how I want you to handle it, does the DOD reserve that same right to push back and say, no, this isn't how we're going to handle it. We're, it's going to be this or it's going to be that. Or because it's your own IP, you control that. Yeah, so here, here's the mechanisms at play. If the government wants a copy of a document because it informs them how to operate as an agency in any capacity, they're required to go get a copy. Okay. That's just like federal record keeping 101. Doesn't mean they own it. Just means they need to possess a copy, right? There are going to be some data types that, regardless of who owns it, the government has or enjoys certain unlimited rights to. So things like an operations manual on how to field strip or repair something. They have to be able to repair something they buy from you. And so they have unlimited rights to those select data types. Same thing goes for interchangeability information, right? If I need to know what the thread pitch is on that screw, I got to know. You can't restrict that information. So from that perspective, there's going to be some uh, data types or document types that should absolutely be considered, you know, uh, out of play. You can't make that determination as a contractor once the government decides that they they need a copy. And if you don't like that, that's the decision on whether or not you do government contracting. Yeah, very but interesting. That being said, that that's all that's all clear cut and laid out in laws and regulations, so you can see that train coming. It's not, it doesn't have to be a surprise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, that's great, man. Yeah. And we'll definitely link to all that content as well. It's, it's a really, really valuable perspective. And I think it's one that people don't dive into all that often. So 
yeah, you definitely, you definitely expanded people's understanding quite a bit. So one of the other questions that got brought up on the town hall that we wanted to ask you about was this sort of evergreen um, conundrum paradox question that seems to get asked every month. And so, you know, in theory, in theory, the way that CMMC is supposed to work is if you could, you know, Thanos snap and reset the CUI universe, you wouldn't be able to re receive CUI to store, process, or transmit it until you had a CMMC certification. But the problem is, is that people don't understand how they should scope an environment unless they have the data. And you can't get an assessment unless you do the scope. So you need the cert to get the data, but you can't get the cert if you don't have the data is the seeming paradox. And so one of the questions that got asked this month was, how are OSCs supposed to clearly architect their solution when they've never been informed what CUI they receive or that they would create? So we just wanted to get your take on this seeming paradox that comes up all the time. Okay, I, I wanna be super empathetic to that challenge. Of course, right? of course. Because I mean, you're being asked to make a very decisive, difficult decision in the face of a lot of ambiguity, you're, you're being thrown into the deep end and that is unfair and we wish it was different. It's so I, I don't want to seem cavalier with, yeah, with any of absolutely. these answers. Here, here's the simple fact though. Now that we've got this much more concise, clarified guidance from DOD, reminding us that anything with DOD distribution statements B through F is CUI. If I can identify even one document that is CUI because of those legacy markings. Now I have certain options at my disposal. I can take that document and say, hey, how do we consume this as an organization? Where does it go? Who gets it? it it's sales, quoting, engineering, our manufacturing prep teams. Uh, after things get through the production floor, is, is there quality operations involved? I'm, I'm using a manufacturing context here. Sure, but, sure. But those business processes can be identified as a consumer of that, that piece of information. Okay. If I can do that, I can underlie or figure out the underlying applications that sit under those processes. If I can do that, I can go to IT teams and figure out the infrastructure that sits under those. Mm -hmm. And now I, I know that in at least one instance, I have CUI flowing through those business processes consumed by those teams used by those systems. And now I know uh, I have at least that as my safeguarding footprint. Yeah. If I can move forward in good faith with that rudimentary information, I can tune that. I can get better at clarifying that later. I might have to add additional components or whatever, but I'm not, I'm not completely stopped from making progress. You, you need an environment that can safeguard CUI, even right. if it's not the absolute totality of what that needs to look like. You need something. So let's get started on that. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, and that's similar to what we've said in the past as well, is that it, it feels like a paradox, but it's not really. And you're basically modeling this data flow off of even one piece of data. And you don't even necessarily need that piece of data in order to do it, but it is very counterintuitive and probably very different from what the majority of companies in the DIB have ever had to do before. In my opinion, it's really more of an issue with the way that 171 was tailored and designed, where they sort of assumed, you know, Jason had a post on LinkedIn on this uh, several weeks ago, where he was like, what's the most critical control in the catalog? And he's like, it's the one that depends on data flow, because that's the wellspring that everything comes from. But it's just barely mentioned. You just breeze right by it in the requirements. 
And to my knowledge, I don't know if you know, but to my knowledge, there is no NIST standard on data flow diagramming or data flow mapping. It is sort of the ultimate fundamental assumption that you have an understanding here. So um, probably not a lot of help coming in terms of like an additional NIST standard, although people may disagree how helpful those are to begin with, but it is possible. It is not, it is not actually the paradox that it, that it appears to be. So. Yeah. You don't need perfect information to make a quality decision. Yeah. Which is, which is hard, right? I mean, we're talking about a lot of companies that are engineering firms, manufacturing firms where, you know, their entire, uh, their entire operation is based off typically perfect information. And now you're asking them to zig instead of zag when that has never been what you've asked them to do or even paid or incentivized them to do beforehand. You're supposed to, they come from a world where they do well if they do exactly what they are asked to do. And here you're like, well, I don't know, just, you know, figure it out. You're like you wouldn't have ever asked them to do that in the last several decades. So it's not, it shouldn't be, you know, to your point about being empathetic, it shouldn't be a surprise that, that it's throwing people for a loop. So. Yeah. And then com as a compounding effect, we've talked about this plenty of times uh, in, in some of our NIST MEP funded uh, projects you're also taking organizations that have never been incentivized for anything but availability and uptime. And then saying on the CIA triad, I'll oh, throw all that out, hard C, confidentiality, yep. that's all that matters. And yep. you're expecting there to be a skill set there. And that's yeah. really hard as well. And that, that goes doubly for the university environments where all of a sudden it's this super open collaborative, you know, for the sake of the pursuit of science and knowledge. And then you go, stop talking to everybody and don't share that information. You're like, that's not the culture of how those organizations work. So it, it definitely, it definitely causes some, some issues. So, all right, man, last, uh, last set of questions here. I know that this is a topic that you uh, have talked about at length in many forums is the proper way of navigating and understanding the CUI registry. And if there is not a specific authority that dictates that a information type is CUI, then it's not CUI, right? And so one, some of the questions that came up in the town hall were, has the DOD issued an official position on if SSPs are considered CUI and related to that separate, separate question, are assessment results considered to be CUI? And the answer that was given on the town hall was similar to other answers in other forms is, well, the department has indicated that it should be treated as CUI or the department has, you know, gestured with their hands in the air to indicate that it should be CUI. And my understanding is if it's not an authority listed in the CUI registry, it's not CUI. If it's not a provisional category of CUI in the registry, it's not even about to be CUI. I don't care what the department says or what they feel or what they think. If it needs to be CUI, you need to write an authority that says so. But that's my understanding. I wanted to get your understanding here. Yeah, there's there's two components going on right here, right? Like are a private sector company's system security plan or plans considered CUI? And then there's this other part, which is, you know, is an agency or, or the DOD allowed to specify safeguarding in the absence of CUI? Mm -hmm. So there's kind of these two components here, right? So the first component of it would be that 
system security plan information about a private sector company, at least from everything that I've read, would not qualify as any of the leading CUI authorities to be CUI because it's not government owned information. And even when it's in the hands of the AB or a C3PAO, it's not possessed by the government either. Mm-hmm. And so the government's primary authority reasons for something being CUI is to prevent the release of a piece of information under a Freedom of Information Act request. Mm-hmm. You know, private sector companies don't have the same obligations to release things uh, under a FOIA request. You'd laugh if someone tried to FOIA your private company. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, April Fool's Day is coming up soon. So yeah, yeah, it just it just doesn't track. And so. When, when you've got a, a system security plan, it doesn't qualify as information systems vulnerability information. We talked about that in CS2. That's an incredibly limited authority. Mm-hmm. There would be very few situations I could think of where you'd even get into these conversations. So the, the only way, the only reason that I could muster why an SSP would be CUI is that the contractor wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. They chose to market in such a way that if received by the DOD, they would have to treat it as CUI. And even then the DOD would still have to uh, get a copy, right? So now we're talking about a DIBCAC assessment. We're not talking about a, a private a C3PAO assessing it. Right. So that's the only situation I could think of in which an SSP would be considered CUI. And in those situations, I would absolutely want to force the DOD to treat it as CUI. Right. Can, can can my private business engaging with Jason's private business C3PAO voluntarily go out and get a CMMC assessment that generates results? And if I never do business with the government ever, it's somehow CUI, the data generated between our two private companies. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Now, here's the thing, though, is I mean, there's this is a, this is. A, it's this weird world of legal black and white that exists in a universe of gray space, right? Because yeah, and- clearly that information is sensitive and ought it be CUI and protected? Yes. By policy, is it CUI? No. And so, you know, which one, which one are we going to do here? Now, I, what, where I think this conversation is very interesting is, you can see, I mean, we've kind of gotten some pushback from people when we say they're going to overmark CUI. They're going to mark everything CUI by default, and it's going to be up to you, as unfair as it is, to push back on them through your understanding of the CUI registry and your negotiation to be like, you got to chill. And you can see that happening when you hear answers like this, where they go, well, your SSP and your assessment results are CUI because they ought to be CUI and ISVI, information system vulnerability information category of CUI, walks and talks and rhymes with this type of information. And we treat it like CUI on the federal side. So clearly you would treat it and you're like, you have to chill. Okay. That is not how this is supposed to work. Otherwise, everything will be CUI. And if you wait for, in my opinion, everyone upstream to come to that realization on their own, you are going to be inundated with everything is CUI, your assessment results are CUI, your SSP is CUI. And until there's an authority, there is a case to be made if you choose to, to push back. What would you say to, to these people? And we have these conversations or we witness these conversations all the time, obviously between the three of us, but what would you say to these people that say, the only reason that I have an SSP or the only reason that I'm participating in an assessment 
is because I'm a part of a contract. And so it's a deliverable because I have to prove that I'm compliant based on the requirements in the contract. And so then it's a part of something that is generated because so, but it's not necessarily a service, right? They're, they're not contracting you mm-hmm. to write an SSP. They're not contracting you to get an assessment, but an element of the contract are obviously these oh, man. things. It, Ryan, are you going to use the, the best metaphor of all time for generating information on contract? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to use the best metaphor of all time. I don't, I don't... Your Jimmy John's example? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that, I was... You're in a very dark place uh, when when Jimmy John's becomes your spirit animal to explain a concept. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if if there's this if there's this uh, unilateral sort of like transferable property of CUI that just makes things CUI, you know, uh, through walls, you know, then uh, you know your. But the joke that I sometimes say is that you know your your Jimmy John's order that you placed while performing a contract is CUI because. I mean, I don't know how you order Jimmy John's, but it's absolutely Turkey a Tom, baby. Tom. And there is a quality control process and you get paper proof. There's so a specification. Uh, yeah, that, not, that could very well be easy mayo, I'm sending it back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that will that will count towards past performance. So <laughs> the here, we can do this all day, the, folks. Here's the thing though, Jason, you, you, you were you were talking about this this idea of you know, system security plan information, whether that should be considered sensitive, even even if it's maybe not CUI or something like that. I I, I don't I don't want to be like again joking around too much with things that, that really matter a lot for people, but yeah. you, you've got to find ways to uh, maybe provide like corollaries or analogies that help people understand the like you know why something would be this way versus that way you had talked about what what happens if my ssp is uh going to be considered a, a a contract deliverable well in the same way that a jimmy john's order can't be considered uh, a deliverable on a contract an ssp can't necessarily be required one or be considered a deliverable either for for one really important reason laws don't allow for it. So I want to say, I'm going to get this wrong. Feel free to retcon in the comments, but I think it's title 15 of the U.S. code section 3771 talks about the DOD's responsibilities under DFARS for contracting with the DIB. And their burden is that wherever practical, they have to specify what documents they want from you as line item deliverables. Mm-hmm. So there, there is an absolute landmine sitting in uh, program guidance right now that the DOD has not done anything with. It's called DIMGMT 82247. Right. Man, and it is up, the minimum the, contract the requirement here. for an SSP. And if the DOD were to choose to put that into your bidder instructions or into some other section of your solicitation or contract award, your SSP would be a deliverable, but if it has Can you not, keep your voice down because <laughs> <laughs> I maybe I should just stop talking before before uh, I've never heard well, from this again. Is, but... It's such an interesting example, though, and we'll link everybody to that to that document as well because 
which one do you want? Do, do you want the specific line item of what information your SSP needs? Do you want the quality standard, like traditional way, do this, do this, do this, do this? This is the template for what a policy looks like. This is the template for what an SSP looks like. These are the line item deliverables that are exactly what you need. Or do you want it to be this world of ambiguity and uncertainty where maybe it is, maybe it isn't, maybe we don't have to do it at all. We can pick and choose how we want to write it and design it and so on and so forth. You know, which, which one do you want? Because if you, if you ask the bureaucracy to give you bureaucracy, they will give it to you in spades. But there's a trade-off in the sense that you now have to wrestle with those details. But it is much more certain and easier to see. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. So we'll... We'll see, but yeah, I, I'm 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 really happy you brought that up. We'll definitely link that because I don't think we've talked about it on the show yet. It, it's it's sad that these weird like arbitrary data item description codes are just like in near term memory for me. I wish that wasn't the case, but un unfortunately, you have to track like all of these different possible outcomes. I'm like Doctor Strange over here, yeah, figuring out like the the possible outcomes where the dib well, survives your, a lot of these <laughs> in your clearly monastic bunker. In, in a nondescript building deep in the heartland of America is where you meditate on all of the data item descriptions and how they work together, which is, you know, that's why, that's why your CS2 talks are so awesome and why we will link to all of that content and why we are uh, thankful for you being so gracious with your time. Everybody, Ryan Bonner, the great and powerful CEO and founder of DefSir. Yeah, there we go. Well, some more of the questions from the extended Q&A, or excuse me, from the Q&A section, the chat section of the AB Town Hall had to deal with rulemaking. So I know you're going to get excited. Oh, boy. Do, we, do, do you need a minute to prepare yourself? I'm, like, I'm, I'm ready uh, to go. All right. First question. My understanding is that there are two pending rules related to CMMC. I assume one is the core rule related to CMMC we've been expecting. Any idea what the other rule is about? Uh, we have an idea. Yes, there are two rules. So we'll link to the rulemaking video that we put out at the end of January. There are two CMMC rules. So very quick recap. The CMMC rule that everyone is familiar with that came out in 2020 had two parts. It had the DOD assessment methodology part. It had the CMMC part. That's what gave us DFAR 7019 and 7020, the DOD assessment methodology. DIBCAC low, medium, high assessments, 531 point weightings to the controls in 800-171. That's all the DODAM side of the 2020 rule. The other side was all the CMMC part. At the time, five levels and process maturity and no waivers, no POAMs, no nothing, and so on and so forth. One rule, two prongs, three clauses. As time went on, uh, the DOD decided to split that rule in two. So we have what is, you know, basically going to be the DODAM rule mm -hmm. and the CMMC rule. Both of those put contract clauses into your paperwork. DFAR 7019-20, DFAR 7021 for CMMC. The problem is, is that the CMMC contract clause doesn't point to anything codified in the Code of Federal Regulations. Where does the CMMC program live in black and white as a DOD program like any other DOD program, right? So what the DOD decided to do was 
to create the program codified in black and white. And that requires more rulemaking, except it doesn't create a contract clause. That's what the DFAR 7021 clause does. This is written to a separate part of the Code of Federal Regulations, what is known as Title 32. Contract clauses live in what is known as Title 48. So the way you can okay. think about it is we have two CMMC rules. We have a Title 32 CMMC rule, which creates and codifies the program. You have the Title 48 CMMC rule, which has the DFAR 7021 clause that says, go get a CMMC certification, if that makes sense. Then on the side, you've got the DODAM clause rule. But since that points to DIBCAC assessments and NIST standards and stuff, it's already established. They don't have to create a fourth rule. So there are two CMMC rules. Uh, the question uses the word core CMMC rule. The way that I like to think about it is you have the program rule, 32 CFR CMMC. You have the clause rule, 48 CFR CMMC. So the 48 CFR CMMC part is already done because it came out in the rule that's in 2020. All it says is go get a cert. It doesn't actually say much at all. The 32 CFR rule is the part that's going to take all of the CMMC 2.0 information, three levels, waivers, uh, POAMs, all that stuff. That is what the core rule or the program rule is going to include. And that's why it's taken so long. So we already know what's going to be in the rule, basically, because DOD had already told us when they got done with their 2020 review of CMMC and they released their strategic intent and said, we're going to do CMMC 2.0. Here are the changes. The rulemaking process started to codify those changes. So a lot of times what you'll see, you'll see a lot of confusion where people will go, oh, they keep talking about the changes to CMMC. That means that it's going to change. That's not okay. true. They're talking about the changes they decided on at the end of 2021. But the rulemaking process due to red tape and the nature of the rulemaking process and how long it takes, which is not unique to DOD, means it takes a couple years for those changes that they already decided on back then to show up in black and white in the Code of Federal Regulations. So there are two. We know what they focus on. We know what the difference is. Check out the rulemaking video that we had at the end of January, which we'll link to. It'll answer all your questions. All right, next question. Are you ready? Sure. Is rulemaking still expected to be completed in March? Uh, no, because uh, it is the end of March, right? It is the end of March. Uh, so when we're recording this, it is the end of March, and we don't have a rule. So uh, originally, it was expected in March because, as we'll talk about in a later segment, there was a lot of congressional testimony by the DOD this month. And in one of those subcommittee hearings about a year ago, they testified to Congress that they were expecting the rule to be done in March and in, con and in contracts by the summer. So this wasn't speculation. This is what DOD told Congress, right? And so it was a pretty strong indicator that that was what they were planning on. Uh, now, as it turned out, that didn't actually play out because of bureaucracy and red tape and so on and so sure. forth. Pretty standard fare for rulemaking. But no, it will not be done in March. The rumor sort of word on the street is April-ish, right? So it could be, you know, like we talk about in the video, it has to get sent to OMB for regulatory review. Then it has to get published in the Federal Register. And then based off the status it's assigned when it's published, it determines when it's effective. And so the word on the street is, is it may get sent to OMB, you know, April-ish. Then they would have to take about two months or so on average in order to publish it. 
And then once it's published, it'll have either proposed or interim final status. And that will mean that it's effective either summer of this year, 2023, or summer of next year, 2024. We don't know what status it will get because OMB gets to make that decision, which is something that we'll talk about when we cover Stacy's session at CS2 because she just said it again. DOD doesn't get to decide whether it's interim final or proposed. That's a decision that OMB makes. So we hear a buzz that says that there is a, a frantic, uh, I don't, frantic's a terrible word. It sounds like it's like mass chaos and confusion. Um, but there is a frenzy being put on. I don't know if that's much better um, to try to push the rule maybe by the end of March. So yeah. with that, rumor in the universe with that with that thought being being in the universe do you think that we're waiting another month before the rules submitted to omb i I mean it's hard to know right i mean every time i mean they testified to congress we're going to have it in march and summer and they didn't make that one and everything that we've heard from them since uh they haven't hit so at this point right we've sort of had to learn our lesson and take what they say with a grain of salt because right. we don't have any visibility into the red tape inside the pentagon uh however in one of the congressional testimony uh that john sherman the dod cao gave to house armed services i can't remember which one uh he said hey we know it's taking longer than what we told you last year congress but in his words they are measuring twice and cutting once in the coordination around the Pentagon. So when you listen to what they say, they say, we are making, we are taking the time to make sure that when we send this rule, it's done. Right. Okay. So when you don't listen to DOD's testimony to Congress, which I don't know why everybody's not tuned in. Is there like a basketball tournament going on or something? When you don't listen to what's going on and just, it seems like nothing's happening. You have nothing to go on. So you go, well, it's not raining now, so it's never going to rain. And so, you you know, when you listen to what DOD is saying, they're like, listen, uh, our bad. We told you, Congress, it was going to be done. We took way longer than we thought. This is why we took longer. That signals to me that when the rule is out, that's the rule. Now, as we know from our, our reading and research into the rulemaking process, Um, This is a key concept for everybody to understand. Rulemaking does not begin when the rule is published for public comment. Rulemaking is basically over by the time a rule is published for public comment. The majority, the overwhelming majority of the rulemaking process happens way before it ever gets published. And it's this weird irony of rulemaking where in order to have the most accurate rule for the public to comment on, the rule has to be done. But because the rule is basically done, public comment doesn't really have much of an effect on the substance and structure of the rule, right? And so as a result, if you are waiting on the rule uh, and expecting your public comments to have a lot of leverage and ability to change the rule, you're probably going to be disappointed because that's just not how the rulemaking works. It's this weird trick of rulemaking, right? It's just this weird thing that happens. And so... The case that we've been making for two years is if you listen closely to what DOD says to Congress and what they say at events and what they say in webinars and what they say their intent is, they are telegraphing what's in the rule. And because when the rule comes out, public comment doesn't really affect it very much, we pretty much know what the rule is going to look and sound like. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's something to 
to pay attention to. There was a lot of points during um, Stacey Bostianic's presentation at CS2 Huntsville that um, it led me to believe that there's not going to be anything that we don't expect in the rule. There's no going to no. be. No, and those were her exact words. Yeah, those were her exact words was there are no gotchas in the rule, right? No this is gotchas, the CMMC. This is the CMMC program rule, right? This is the codification of the CMMC program stuff. So the steps and phases of assessments and waivers and poems and levels and that stuff is all the program side. Everything that has to do with the requirements is not in that rule. She has said this for two years at this point. The rule that tells you to implement 171 which the CMMC program assesses was done in 2016. And that's not changing. And even if it were to change, it wouldn't be as a result of this rule. So if you're waiting on the CMMC rule to get started on the requirements, then that's a problem, right? Because it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. That's not what that rule is doing. All right. Next question from um, the rulemaking portion of the, uh, the, the sure, program. The category of questions, right? <laughs> So the, the CAP, the CMMC assessment process, uh, will there be an update in parallel with rulemaking? So this was interesting. This was actually a question that they that the AB answered on the town hall. Mm-hmm. So the CAP is a document that the AB publishes, but some parts of the CAP sound very DOD-like to me. Some with of the language. DOD oversight. I think it's they publish yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah. They it's, not, it's not a completely independent document. Yep. Yeah, it's not a completely independent document. Now, which parts are the words of the AB and which parts are the words of the DOD has never been highlighted in public that I've ever seen before. I would love to know who wrote which parts because that would kind of tell you if DOD wrote these specific sections, that's probably what's in the rule, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to take the cap with a grain of salt. It's just a draft document. It is not an official DOD only document. But if you look at some of the specifics, like the details in there, they seem a little too specific for the AB to have just come up with them. Mm-hmm. And so I personally think that it kind of uh, is a little peek at the specifics that will be in the rule. Minimum the minimum number of controls that needs to be uh, considered met during an assessment for you to qualify for a POAM, how long a POAM is valid for 180 days, things like that. Right. Um, So everybody goes, well, are we going to get a cap update before the rule is out? And Matt said, no, no, we're going to wait for the rule to be published. And then probably about 30 days after the publication of the rule, they will incorporate those changes into a updated draft cap. And then probably once the final rule comes out and they verify that nothing else changed, that's when the final cap would be issued. And as we talked about before, the rule has to go from DOD to OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. And then about two months later, 66 business days on average, the rule gets published. So if they were to, let's say they were to submit the rule to OMB on March 31st, 66 business days later would put us at the beginning of July Mm -hmm. uh, for when it would be published. So then we would probably have an updated draft cap sometime in summer if we got a published CMMC rule sometime in the summer. So they plan to update it when the proposed rule or interim final rule is published, which uh, a couple things still have to happen. Now, um, you had mentioned that, you know, there's going to be that public version that's going to be released, you know, roughly 30 days a- a- after the, the final rule. 
Um, Matt Travis did mention that that will be the contribution to create that document will be a uh, task taken on by the Cyber AB, um, some hand-selected C3PAOs, some certified C3PAOs, and an industry working group, which they would select also. Um, so now you have, obviously, industry input, ecosystem input, and uh, authoritative input from the AB um, that will hopefully come to create a much better document than what's currently existing. Yeah. I mean, the draft, it's it's a draft for a lot of reasons. And, you know, Matt even said it on the town hall. They were like, hey, we got to trim this back. I think we added too much information in a bunch of sections, which is great to hear. It's always great to hear that a document could possibly be shorter, especially since we all are traumatized by the length of <clears throat> various NIST standards. You know what I mean? What, so, and did you say whether or not there would be an opportunity to comment on that. Yeah, so they said on the town hall that uh, you know people would have the opportunity to comment on the cap again. I mean, they had their comment period. I think we talked about it before they published the uh, spreadsheet matrix of all the comments they received on the original draft cap. We'll link to that again so people can check it out when they um, publish the CMMC rule. Probably about a month ish later, they incorporate those changes into the cap. The cap gets published. People get to comment, and then we'll start that cycle over again. The cap is not part of formal rulemaking. It's just a thing the AB does as sort of a courtesy. Um, but yeah, there'll be another chance to comment. So what do you what do you think happens if the rules released and then obviously you know like or, or, sorry, we'd still have to go through rulemaking. It still have to be implemented. I, I got way ahead of myself. I would say how are we going to do assessments if there's not a new revision of the cap? But realistically, yeah. Yeah, well, and that's that's the crazy part is, you know, like we said, uh, coming up when we talk about Stacy's session at CS2, you know, OMB is the one who decides whether a rule is interim final or proposed. And the difference is, is when the program becomes effective. And the reason there's a difference is an interim final rule allows a regulation to be effective before the agency has to respond to public comments. A proposed rule, the standard way that rulemaking is done says that the regulation is not effective until after an agency responds to public comments. They both receive public comments, but one of them takes an extra year on average because of how long it takes to collect and respond to all the comments. One of them goes into effect immediately because you don't have to respond to the comments before it goes into effect. DOD has said they want an interim final rule because there's plenty of reason why they want to start assessing companies now. I mean, they've, mm -hmm. there's been a valid reason for years taking an extra year to respond to public comments, especially when we kind of already know what those public comments will look like. Um, yeah, there's a case to be made that taking that extra year of time, although it is good for democracy, is probably not the best thing for assurance over the dib when we've already waited two to three years, right? Yeah, I can't um, argue that at all. Yeah, so um, yeah, one of the interesting things that came up uh, this month was there was a GAO report that came out about the... Uh, impact that administration, presidential administration changes have on rulemaking timelines. So when you start to hear that, oh, well, the DOD might get a proposed rule and that would push the effective date into 2024, people go, well, there's going to be an election. So how is that going to work? And so this is kind of like when uh, the sitting, when there's an election year and the, the, incumbent president wins re-election, the AFC team wins the Super Bowl, and when the challenger wins, the NFC wins it, right? Like, kind of like Is that. that uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's a bunch of variables that would go into it. Right. I, I don't actually, I haven't actually looked at Super Bowl champions as a predictor for what's going on. And I don't know if GAO included that in their data set for their analysis in this report, but you should, uh, you could, you could submit that to them as a, as a possible data point for, for their last time the chiefs won the Super Bowl, we got CMMC 1.0. Yeah. And as a, as a frustrated uh, fan of a team in the AFC West, I'd rather, uh, I'd rather talk about something else. So, (laughs) so anyways, GAO came out with this report analyzing rulemaking in the lead up to uh, presidential administration changes. This is typically known as midnight rulemaking where regulations are uh, finalized in the twilight hours and days and weeks of the outgoing administration, right? So if you have an administration change, you know, of a different party and they have finalized a bunch of regulations and they're on the books codified, then the incoming uh, presidential administration is just sort of left with these on the books, right? You can't change them unless you want to go through more rulemaking. And so there's always been this theory that when you have a presidential administration change, that it's going to affect the rulemaking. And it's relevant to people in the CMMC world because people go, well, if we get a proposed rule and it goes to 2024 and the administration changes, they're definitely not going to want to do this because it is smelly and dumb and we don't want to do it. And Mm -hmm. so then they're going to review it and it's going to go on and on and it's never going to happen. According to the GAO report, that's not true. Uh, That is absolutely not true. There actually isn't an effect of on rulemaking in uh, the transition period between administrations. There is an increase in the number of rules that go final towards the end of each administration, but the sort of ongoing theory is that that's a result of just how long the rulemaking process starts. If you start rulemaking when you get elected, then it takes two or three-ish years for rules to go final. So you get a bunch of rules that pop up at the end of a administration's time in office. And so it looks like everybody's trying to jam these rules through, but GAO found that that actually wasn't the case. And our own independent research, looking at DOD rulemaking specifically, all the way back to 2009, we did not find an impact in the change of the amount of time it takes for OMB to review and publish rules or for proposed rules to go final when they occurred in transition periods or between administrations. So uh, we'll link to this report. It's pretty interesting, but there is no impact that GAO found or that we have found in our research of an election year or transition period extending indefinitely the rulemaking process. So if you hear people telling you that about CMMC, ask them, ask them how they know that. And what Sweet baby you? Jesus, I hope we are not still in this rulemaking process when we train when we transition. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think we will. I mean, obviously, if they if so, I mean, even if you had, it would be full Titanic, like it's been 80 (laughs) years, like, dude, I I can't do it. Yeah, even if you had a proposed rule, right, on average, across all DoD rules since 2009, including the largest outliers, which were the Service Academy accreditation rule, and uh, I think I think service service connected cemeteries, I think, was the rule, which lasted a really, really long time, like 2000 days long for those two. We Good kept three. all the outliers in the data and the average was still 330 business, 333 business days for a proposed rule to go final. So what, like we said in the video, you just slide that window to the right 
if the proposed rule comes out in July or August, then you end up, you know, end of Q3, Q4 of 2024. But then again, right, the CMMC program started under a different administration. And the CUI program that is sort of the underlying force that's requiring assurance over the data started in yet a different administration. Mm -hmm. And the impetus prior to the Obama executive order started in the W. Bush administration prior to that. And so this is a trans administration by, you know, directional across time transcends politics and time and space. This is not something that is unique to party or administration at this point. And so based on that, based on GAO, based off of our research, uh, you know, there's really no basis to say that there, you know, that an election year or transition period would have an impact on it. There are lots of other things that are impacting it. Internal DOD red tape has probably more of an effect than uh, than an election. It's just crazy that people do studies on things like that. Just, you know, like the I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, I remember I remember Super Bowl winners, role finalization, you know, yeah. everything like just what do you have to do with yeah. your free time? Yeah, it is. It is definitely interesting. But yeah, it's good for people to know as a data point, because you'll probably hear that come up as we move towards 2024. People go, what about the election? And you can say, <clears throat> well, that's not actually true. From the Q&A, and, and you know, Jacob, when, when you tend to dwell on things for a long time, you start questioning existence and things like, what's the meaning of life? Or why was CMMC created? I can tell it, you, it has, it has rained twice as much in the greater Southern California region compared to Seattle over the last 90 days. And I have been dwelling on the existence of why there are things instead of not things and questioning reality. Uh, increasingly because it's too much rain. So, And I was one of those things that you were questioning and contemplating why was CMMC creative, Jacob? No. Well, that's, some, a very easy, that's a very easy question to answer. Well, there's some people who uh, in the question and answers chat from it this month's a, town hall are contemplating the exact same things. Like, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, it's a good question if you don't know. I mean, why does CMMC exist? Why are we doing this? One and question the, was, why was CMMC created when Dipcat could have done the same job? Yeah. So it's, a, I mean, it is a valid question. It's a good question to answer. So, and it's one, honestly, that DOD doesn't really say out loud very much uh, anymore. And that they didn't really say out loud very much when this whole thing kicked off. Uh, they did a lot of, you know, uh, CUIs being exfiltrated from the DIB and mm -hmm. more assurance, but they never really said why CMMC instead of the DIBCAC program, which is the team of DOD full-time employees who are mm -hmm. uh, security assessors as their job. So the simple answer is it's a question of scale, right? The DOD cannot scale the DIBCAC team to meet the overall amount of assurance that it wants over its data flows in the defense industrial base, sort of end of story. And uh, if you go back into the rule, the CMMC rule, that was published at the end of 2020, they explain this. Uh, they actually explain it multiple times. So to quote the rule directly, neither the FAR clause, which is FAR 52-204-21, sometimes mm -hmm. referred to as FAR basic, the set of requirements uh, that correspond to CMMC level one, mm -hmm. neither the FAR clause nor the DFARS clause, DFAR 7012, provide for DOD verification of a contractor's implementation of basic safeguarding requirements or the security requirements specified in NIST SP 800-171 prior to contract award. 
easy enough. Yeah. Given the size and scale of the DIB sector, this is the important part, the department cannot scale its organic cybersecurity assessment capability, DIBCAC, to conduct on-site assessments of approximately 220,000 DOD contractors every three years. As a result, the department's organic assessment capability, DIBCAC, is best suited for conducting targeted assessments for a subset of DOD contractors. They okay. actually repeat that last section for uh, the department cannot scale uh, two different times in the rule. If you're curious, we will link to it. It is on page 49 and page 62. So the answer to why it exists is because they need to scale. Now, obviously, that was written in 2020 under the guise of CMMC 1.0 when the uh, hope and desire of the DOD was to be able to assess every contractor in the industrial base. As we know, that wasn't a realistic idea. They spent all of 2021 doing their review of the CMMC program. They then released those changes under what is called CMMC 2.0, where they now expect that CMMC level two assessments against NIST SB 800-171 requirements would apply to somewhere in the neighborhood of 80,000 companies rather than 220,000 companies that would all receive external assessments. So uh, that's why it exists and why you know they can't just use DIBCAC and scale DIBCAC. I mean, er we've talked about this on previous episodes. You hear this all the time in um, congressional testimony from DOD or news uh, uh, articles about DOD. Uh, they, they have a workforce problem. They don't, they can't hire everyone. They can't keep everybody, whether they are DOD civilians, whether they're in the military. Uh, it is, it, you cannot scale their organic assessment capability of the words that they use. You cannot scale that team. You have to use external third parties. Uh, they just, I think, sort of bit off more than they can chew to quote directly the DOD CISO, Dave McEwen, in February of last year. Uh, when they came out with the plan to do external assessments for every level of CMMC for every contractor uh, that receives any form of information from the DOD at all. Now, that answer and the reasoning you provided um, in the answer to that question kind of leads into the next question on mm -hmm. the topic, right? Is that uh, if DIPCAC wasn't able to meet scale, uh, what makes you think the CMMC ecosystem can? That's also a very good question, right? And so... I think that the answer to that one is probably a little more subtle. And mm -hmm. uh, so DIBCAC cannot scale. And as we found out, CMMC 1.0 couldn't scale to its original effort either. And mm -hmm. so that was part of the driving factor behind the review to mm -hmm. say, we only want to assess a subset like they talked about, DIBCAC coming in and doing the assessments for level three companies. Mm -hmm. And for CMMC level two via the C3PAOs and the CMMC ecosystem to only assess uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80,000 is their estimate of companies okay. that have uh, the CUI that they care about. All the companies that have FCI or some rare instance of CUI that they don't care about would just be able to do uh, self-assessments. Now, we've talked about this prior on previous episodes of the show, the uh, choke point constraint on the ecosystem is the number of assessors and the number of assessment organizations. But just because it is a constraint does not mean that the DOD won't do it, right? The desire of the DOD, the justification of the rule is that they need assurance over these requirements being implemented and only using DIBCAC doesn't scale. 
just because CMMC doesn't solve the entire problem doesn't mean that they won't also use that to help scale their level of assurance, especially when they have narrowed the aperture from 220, 300,000 down to 80,000 and a couple of level three companies via DIBCAC, right? So when you zoom out and you look at why they did the rule, not just the CMMC program, why they did the rule, then even if CMMC only matches the scale of DIBCAC, which it's going to do more than that, um, they would they get to double they get to double the amount of assurance they have. Like let let's just say, for instance, that CMMC was only going to be able to do as many assessments as DIBCAC can do, which is like 150 a year, right? So all of a sudden, the DoD gets to say, "Oh, we increased our ability to assess the uh, data flows in the supply chain by 100 percent." We have doubled our capacity, right? But you haven't scaled CMMC to solve the problem. So it, it all depends on how you look at it, right? If you look at it from the sense that they are increasing their ability to have assurance, then of course they're going to do it. If you're expecting CMMC to only be a thing if it works to, to fix the scaling problem, then yeah, they wouldn't do it. But that's not why they're doing it, right? So my... The scalability issue is something I always contemplate different scenarios in my head. And one of the ones um, that that is constantly cycling is the fact that, okay, DIPCAC's the one, uh, DIPCAC's the organization that comes in and assesses the C3PAOs that were, are going to need to be created in order to scale, mm -hmm. or unless the 37 C3PAOs are going to have like 15 teams apiece, you know, obviously, you know, something has to be done there. But DIPCAC's also the same organization that is doing the joint surveillance assessments. Yeah. And, and so like there, there, there's a little bit of a bottleneck there. Um, what we do know is the ecosystem is continuously growing and it's going to continue to grow. Yeah. I mean, you just said it, right? I mean, there's, there are 37 certified uh, third party assessment organizations. There are 37 C3PAOs. We should actually go back and look at the old town halls. I don't know. I don't think, I don't think the AB has a chart. We should maybe think about doing this where, uh, I remember when there was like one C3PAO mm -hmm. and then there were three and then people go, it won't scale. And then there were 10 and people go, they won't scale. And now there's almost 40 of them. And then there's going to be 50 and then there's going to be a hundred. And then there's going to be, I mean, you know, and this is, this is the other part about if there's a proposed rule, right? Everybody goes, yay, a proposed rule. It's going to take longer for me to get assessed. But mm -hmm. if there's a proposed rule, that's more time for there to be more capacity in the ecosystem, which means it's a higher chance that you will get assessed versus having an interim rule and there not being enough capacity, right? So it's, just, it's, a, it's a delicate balance to say, which one do you want to have happen? Like they said on the town hall, the um, companies that are in line to get their certification to become a C3PAO are booked out like 90 days. So there's 37 currently, and then there is th a three-month backlog of companies waiting to get added to that number. Complimentary to that. I would like to see exactly how many of them are just waiting to, to become C3PAOs. You know, sure. Not yeah, just waiting in that, that backlog, but like yeah. what, what, you know, what exactly, what is the surge going to be? Or what, yeah. when is the surge going to happen? Yeah. And so even if there's 50, which I'm sure we're going to hit that number by, you know, end of this year at least, right? If there's 50 C3PAOs, it's not enough capacity to give everyone an assessment on day one who wants an assessment. 
but it's way more capacity than DibCAC has. And so then through the lens of why they did the CMMC rule, it's a huge win. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's one of those things where it's like you have to figure out which lens you're looking through when you're evaluating the argument. Yes, it is true. CMMC will not scale to meet the full capacity of what it needs to do, especially compared to the rhetoric that was used mm-hmm. around the early CMMC program. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't scale at all, right? Especially compared to the sort of existing DibCAC capacity. Is it different teams within DibCAC that perform these, or is it basically the same team, yeah. just different? Um, you know what I mean? We'll like, probably, we'll have to get Nick on here or ask him, you know, at the next CS2 if we're lucky enough to have him back about sort of how the structure of the DibCAC teams work. Uh, or maybe we'll bring Caleb on because he used to be a DibCAC assessor. Maybe we'll ask him sort of how they're structured and set up. Maybe we'll do that. For, uh, maybe we'll do that next month. You know, there's certain personnel that's just solely focus on the C3PAOs and then certain personnel that are yeah, doing JSVAs. That, that'd be an interesting dynamic to under, you know, a, uncover. Yeah. It's a priority for the department. So, you know, they're, they're not, not doing anything. So, I mean, they've done 37 of them so far. And that's, I think, a lot more than what people thought we would have when people were saying we only have two or three. A lot of questions that we hear, Jacob, have to deal with uh, reciprocity with other control frameworks and inheritance of the controls that are attached to those, right? Or inheritance of the practices and the uh, achievement of those. And there were a lot of questions uh, in the town hall um, that were presented, which, you know, kind of relate to that topic. And um, obviously a lot of them circled around like ISO Mm -hmm. 27001 and the reciprocity attached to that. So a couple questions for you here. Is there any update on the reciprocity with ISO 27001 and or FedRAMP? No. So the answer that we're going to continue to get is that that will be fleshed out in rulemaking. How mm-hmm. how a certification from another certifying program it reciprocates the certification with a different program is a policy question that will be dictated by the CMMC program rule, one of the two rules that we are waiting on for CM in the course of CMMC rulemaking. Uh, however, this comes up quite a bit because ISO 27001 assessments are comparatively cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're much faster. Uh, they are much easier. And that should make you a little suspicious because that automatically, even if you don't know anything about security controls or security in general and how they translate to controls and back again, if one of these things is cheaper, faster, and easier than the other thing, do you think that they would be equivalent and recognized as such? Probably not because there's something going on under the hood. So people should definitely take a look at the appendix at the back of NIST SP-800-171 that shows the mapping to ISO 27001, there are gaps. ISO 27001 does not cover everything that's in 800171, and 800171 is not a ceiling. It is not the goal at the end of the rainbow. It is the minimum baseline. It is the floor. And so if you are asking for reciprocity with 171 to a standard that does not check all the boxes in 171, it's probably not going to be a thing. You know, the other part about ISO 27001 and all of the other frameworks, essentially, CIS or whatever, there's no assessment guide. There is no document that tells you, how do I verify that I have implemented these requirements properly, right? Mm -hmm. 
And that's because the NIST documents are really written by engineer types who are used to requirements verification, which is really like the beating heart of formal engineering is requirements and requirements verification, right? But a lot of people think that engineering is like all Mythbusters, but a lot of it is uh, requirements engineering and doing, you know, doing a lot of verification, right? How do you sure. know that the rocket's not going to blow up whenever we put it on the launch pad? You have to do a bunch of testing and a bunch of verification. How do you know that a control is implemented? How do you know it's working properly? How do you know it's generating the output that you want it to? You have to verify. You need to test it. You need to interview people. You need to, uh, you know, examine the documentation. You have to go through all these methods and processes to try to verify that they're implemented. And then based off of going through that verification and assessment, as we call it, you have an increased level of assurance that these things are implemented properly and operating accordingly and doing the things that you need them to do. And the DOD is very interested in that because they are giving the supply chain data that they both want to have protected and that they are obligated themselves to protect. So they need a level of assurance. So when you ask for a control framework to be reciprocal with 171 and it does not have a set of assessment procedures, the question to ask is, how do you know that, one se that ISO 27001 is implemented? Like, how would you know? The only way that you know is based off the questions that <clears throat> your ISO auditor had in their mind and they asked during that assessment. And you, uh, it's basically a question at that point to say, <clears throat> will DOD recognize the ISO cert as equivalent to the CMMC cert? Mm -hmm. The requirements don't match. There is no documented assessment guide. So the level of assurance doesn't, doesn't connect. Yeah, and I, I feel... Actually, I don't. I don't know if this is a, a reasonable thing for me to feel, but the the, the fact is is that um, one seventy one is the criteria that was tailored out of fifty three by mm -hmm. the DoD that they wanted this the, the level of assurance. It guarantees the level of assurance that they desire for their data protection. And if they wanted twenty seven thousand one, they would have chose twenty seven thousand one, right? Yeah, I mean, and so like the, I, I think that that's the the thing that we kind of overlook. We want to stab into things and we will look this deep and look this far, whatever it may be. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's not as comprehensive and there's no way, there's no guarantee, there's no assurance that the things are being implemented right. to meet the minimum level of assurance. Yeah. That now, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it isn't a one for one match. Is there partial reciprocity? I mean, maybe. Is that helpful? Possibly. I don't think that's really the answer that people are looking for when they ask that question though. Now, reciprocity with FedRAMP is a different story. We talked about this on other episodes. Mm -hmm. FedRAMP is the 853 moderate baseline and then some additional 853 mm -hmm. controls added to it. So by definition, it subsumes the requirements in NIST SP 800-171. Therefore, if you are an organization that somehow, for whatever reason, has a FedRAMP certification, then yes, you should also be able to say you have a CMMC certification because you meet all of those requirements and more, way, way more, right? You you are implementing requirements from the source catalog from which 800-171 took parts away from, right? So it's the opposite problem of ISO 27001. It is not a two-way street though, where if you have CMMC, you get FedRAMP because you're dealing with a very small subset of the FedRAMP baseline. So 
uh, how the reciprocity works. I would imagine that the reciprocity in the rule, we don't know, obviously, reciprocity in the rule would say if you have a FedRAMP certification, you get CMMC. Mm-hmm. If you have CMMC, you don't get FedRAMP. ISO 27001, CIS, Cloud Security Alliance, take a hike. Because until you come up with formal verification procedures, that's not how this works. So I think that's what will probably happen. Now, more reciprocity questions. How does reciprocity apply to external service providers? Like, Yeah, like us. Like us, right? So this is a key question. I mean, this is probably the question uh, as far as, you know, from our perspective. And there's a case to be made. It's probably the leverage point in the ecosystem to make everything work. We don't know. We don't know how reciprocity will work for external service providers because we don't have an official policy statement from a rule that says that C- that uh, external service providers like managed service providers like Summit 7 need to have a CMMC certification. And that is a result of a gap in the existing standards and the existing regulations. NIST SP 800-171 assumes that all non-federal organizations handling controlled and classified information have a fully fleshed out and robust information security program that thoughtfully manages the risk of using external services to manage your IT, to do remote administrative support, to do all Mm -hmm. of the managed service provider type things. Uh, And that's a problem because in reality, most companies don't do that. And so when you show up to enforce the standard and it is not an explicit requirement, you don't have a tool to use to affect change and move the needle. Within DFAR 7012, we are showing up to assess what DFARS calls a covered contractor information system, an information system that by definition stores, processes, or transmits controlled unclassified information. Well, managed service providers, there's a strong case to be made, do not store, process, or transmit controlled unclassified information, but they may access controlled unclassified information due to the nature of their business. But the word access is not in the definition of a covered contractor information system. Therefore, it doesn't apply. So managed service providers are not contractors. They are not subcontractors. They do not operate a covered contractor information system. They exist outside of the requirements in SP 800-171 due to the tailoring and assumptions used to design the standard from 853. And that's a huge problem because 75 to 80% of the defense industrial base are small businesses. And like 80 to 90% of small businesses Use managed service providers. Yep. CISA, NSA, uh, the UK, Australia, all these intelligence services and security research have shown time and time again that managed service providers are the leverage point in the system that the bad guys use to attack. uh, Largest attack surface. Yep. Of course. Whether it is for cybercrime and facilitating ransomware or business email compromise, whether it is for nation state or nation state sponsored and affiliated espionage or some other reason, Mm -hmm. uh, the managed service providers are nodes within the supply chain that are connected to all the other nodes that have the information or Mm -hmm. whatever it is that you're looking for. So you go to the MSPs. And yet, when we are trying to affect security and increase assurance over the supply chain, just within the very narrow world of CUI and CUI data flows, the DOD does not have a tool to get their hands around the risk posed by managed service providers, despite their clear, clear number one threat vector and number one ability to 
facilitate the implementation of these controls for all of their clients, right? And so uh, what what's reciprocity going to say for service providers? The question is, will they be required to get CMMC? How will the rule handle that? Should they? Of course. They should, of course, have CMMC level two, if not more, well beyond that because of the mm-hmm. position that they have in the supply chain. But they are not contractors. And the CMMC program exists to enforce and give assurance to DFAR 7012. And DFAR 7012 does not have any ability to reach out and touch managed service providers. So I think what they're actually asking for is how will it reciprocate between a certified managed service provider, assuming that they would get the CMMC certification and their client, which is an inheritance problem, not a reciprocity problem. And we talked about that in the last episode, which we can link to. And in the CMMC assessment mechanism, there, there's going to be elements of your um, implementations that that reciprocity is going to be dependent on, right? Like they're, they're going to be oh, yeah. operating as a, a security <clears throat> protection asset or operating security protection assets on behalf of the OSC and many of the situations. Right. And so like, if you look at it and you know, I commented on this, or I made a post about this on LinkedIn, you should be asking a question of your MSP is, do you know what's going on? Do you understand oh, yeah. what's going on? And do you have an intent to get on, on the party with what's going on? As well, in, this is, this is, do the you know about, about CMMC? It. Do you intend yeah. to pursue CMMC? And, and yeah, like, yeah, like, well, and this is this is the funny part about it is everybody goes, man, it's so stupid for the authors of 800-171 to just assume that you would have thoughtful and risk-informed management of your external service providers. And they didn't assume it because they didn't want to. From the perspective of the authors at NIST and DOD and NARA, they said that is such a fundamental existential risk yep. that is glaring and staring you right in the face. Yep. That if you use an external service provider, there is no way that you wouldn't have thought about your service level agreements and your contract with them and what they're doing on their side and how you're making sure that you have assurance that they are secure. Like it did not occur to somebody. It would, it's so fundamental to the idea of of your risk posture and your security that the authors were like, clearly companies that are doing that are thinking about that. As it turns out, that didn't play out for many, many reasons. And so that leads to this idea of what is NIST going to do in the revision of 171? Are they going to reverse that assumption and then expand all these requirements to external service providers, at which point you could certify those MSPs against the standard via the CMC program? Or are they going to leave it the same? And then we don't know. We don't know until rulemaking comes out. That hopefully is what they do. Not just because we're an MSP, but because that's clearly the path to better security. It's like trying to, it's like choosing to move your life savings into a bank that doesn't have a lock on the vault or any of like safe deposit boxes yeah, or anything like you know, that. It's just. It's uh, th- there's probably a Silicon Valley bank metaphor in there, but uh, you know, we've been talking for a while, so I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Cause that was earlier this month, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just sort of an apparent thing. That I, I, people I agree. So. Now, Jacob, do you anticipate that the, with the, whoa, with the release of, uh, <laughs> did, did you see, man, you did talk about reciprocity. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, it's wild. Just He'll blow in, you yeah. right back in your chair. Do you know it just the clip just gave out, but it's okay. <laughs> do, do, do you anticipate the release of CMMC 
or 3.0 for improvement and update purposes, such as updating mappings to the latest revisions of ISO 27001 before DFAR's rulemaking process is completed. That's a mouthful. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on in that question. So we'll just tackle the first part first. So CMMC revision numbers are not a reliable way of tracking changes to the underlying requirements. CMMC 1.0 correlated to NIST SP800-171 revision 2 and CMMC 2.0 also correlates to CMMC or to NIST SP800-171 revision 2. NIST SP800-171 is due for revision 3 at which point it will still be CMMC 2.0, right? So the revision number is not the sort of reliable way of tracking what's going on under the hood. Now, when they talk about mapping CMMC to 27001, this is why it's important to understand the difference between the CMMC program and the requirements which the program assesses, which are the NIST document. So there is an appendix at the end of uh, 171 Rev 2 that maps to ISO 27001. ISO 27001 has been updated. NIST SP 800-171 is getting ready to come out with its revision. So Mm -hmm. it will have an updated appendix with its mapping over to ISO 27001. Now, when CMMC, uh, when the rule comes out, are they going to change the number? Are they going to drop the number? Does the number matter? We don't really know. I don't really think that the number matters all that much, uh, except for sort of historical purposes. So you aren't updating CMMC to map to 27001. You're updating CMMC to map to NIST SP 800-171. And that might map to 27001. But like we talked about before, they are not a one-for-one substitution. They are not a reciprocal standard, if you will, uh, especially not by not by policy. Now, will, will CMMC be updated before the rulemaking process is complete? Probably not, because... The rulemaking process is designed to codify the language in the CMMC program itself. And on the current CMMC website hosted by the DOD CIO, they even have that banner across the top of the page that says updates to this web page and the documentation will be limited during the rulemaking process, right? So we'll see an update to 171 that should reflect the changes in the mapping to 27,001 before the DFARS rulemaking process is complete, but you probably will not see a change to CMMC itself, but the change to CMMC itself is kind of arbitrary because it points to uh, 800-171. Okay, well put. Um, We got one more question from the Q&A of the town hall that that I want to get to and just have you answer really quickly. Sure. Um, So what is the difference? Quick answers. So this was one that Matt Travis actually answered, and it kind of stumbled. He kind of stumbled on it because it, it was it's a bit confusing. But then when you look at it, you know, obviously he gave an answer, and I just want to hear what your answer would be. So Jacob, what is the difference between a level two assessment and a level two self assessment? Yeah, so I actually thought this was a really good question, uh, and I don't think I've seen it pop <clears throat> up on the town hall so far. So. CMMC level two corresponds to the requirements in NIST SP 800-171. And the assessment via CMMC, whether it is a self-assessment, whether it is an assessment via a C3PAO external third party doing the assessment, both assess the same set of requirements in NIST SP 800-171. In fact, if you get an assessment from DOD directly, 
with their DIBCAC team of auditors under the DOD assessment methodology, which is the complementary part of the original CMMC rule in 2020, they are also assessing the same set of requirements. Everything that has happened since CMMC became a thing, since the rule was issued in 2020, only has to do with various assessment approaches of the same underlying requirements. Sure. So the difference between a level two assessment and certification from a C3PAO and a level two self-assessment is just who's doing the assessment. I asked myself the questions in NIST SP 800-171A to verify that the requirements in NIST SP 800-171 are implemented. A C3PAO came in and asked the questions in 171A. DIBCAC DOD showed up and asked the questions in 800-171A. Same mm -hmm. questions, same requirements, different programs, different assessments, but they're not actually different, if that makes sense. So okay. a self-assessment doesn't result in a certification by any means, but it's exactly the same. And this is pretty important for people to pay attention to because this is the advantage of using a NIST standard is you know what questions you are going to be asked in a certification assessment because they are the same questions that you would ask yourself in a self-assessment, which is why having an assessment document that has the verification procedures in it, like 800-171A, which is contained in the CMMC assessment guide, it's just carried over, is mm -hmm. so advantageous. If the DOD in an alternative universe said, we're going to have a SOC 2 certification and we're going to use that, or we're going to use ISO 27001 certification, or the NIST CSF, right? How do you know if those requirements are implemented? How? What questions did you ask during your self-assessment? Which questions did I ask during your external third-party assessment? They're not normalized across those requirements. You're just guessing, basically. Mm -hmm. And you're just having to take people's word for it. And the entire reason that we're having this conversation is because self-attestation doesn't work. You need external uh, assessments in order to provide higher levels of assurance. So that's really the difference is just who's doing the assessment. All right. So there was a story that came out in the news that Microsoft had undergone a CMMC assessment, CMMC certification. People may have seen this story come up. What was the, uh, what were the details on that? So it was a joint surveillance voluntary assessment, JSVA, the, all the hype in the land right now, right? Yeah. And, and so it's a, it's a good statement for Microsoft to do it. Um, obviously, they contracted or they got with the C3PAO, as we discussed on last episode and earlier in this episode, and that C3PAO was Redspin. Um, and then DIPCAC obviously comes in and they perform the, the uh, joint assessment. And Microsoft Federal achieved a perfect 110. Good using, for them. Yeah. But the, the key important part to this is it should be a sigh of relief for any Microsoft customers because they did so by leveraging the security and monetary, uh, monitoring suite that's available to every customer that uses GCCI. They did it in GCCI. I mean, that's, uh, that gives you a lot of confidence in the fact that it works, right? Because it's, it's gone through the assessment process on their end and it's sort of gone through the set of questions and it's sort of been proved out to work and check the boxes that it needs to check. I mean, that's a very good signal. And so, as we mentioned before, by passing a JSVA, the intent of the DOD. The intent. The intent Not of policy, the DOD. The intent. 
is that for this to turn into a CMMC level two certification. So essentially Microsoft Federal will have done what's needed to be done to obtain a CMMC level two certification. Gotcha. Which is a good back end thing because we just <clears throat> talked about how you want your providers to have these certain provisions in place. And now you have that guarantee that's on the back end of Microsoft services saying that it's in place. Now there's one key thing that I really um, wanted to pull out that was in the press release and we'll link the press release for um, the Microsoft press release for the um, passing of the assessment, obviously in the comments, but building on the FedRAMP high implementations of Azure and Microsoft office allowed our team to focus on implementation of specific data handling controls and inherit substantive portions of our artifacts from those pre-approved controls. We just talked about inheritance, inheritance from FedRAMP. They took the stuff from the FedRAMP package that was applicable to them. I know there's a lot of hoopla going around about if my application's hosted on a FedRAMP equivalent, XYZ, blah, blah, blah. You inherit some of it. You still have some responsibility. I don't care who you are. I don't care what position you've been in. This is the deal, okay? Yeah. If your application's there, this is what needs to happen. So this is really a hot button topic at the time of this recording because Microsoft hosted their federal environment on GCC High, inherited what was inheritable, which made sense for it to be inherited. Like, I don't know, maybe protection of the data at rest. Right, and, from and the FedRAMP like cert, yeah. Yeah, right. And, and then basically did everything else on the back end that's responsible of them that couldn't be inherited to prove that they implemented correctly. Right, which is that's exactly how the system is supposed to work. That's yeah, exactly, it, that's exactly how controls and inheritance and assessments leading to certification in a system of inheritance are supposed to work. And nowhere in this press release for this article or anything that has to do with their assessment did they say something to the the regards of we're on GCC high, certify us because we inherited it all. Right, that's not how yeah, it we're, works. We're hosted in GCC yeah. high, therefore we don't have to do anything. Right? I don't care where you're hosted. Yeah, that's not how it works. Yeah, that's not it. There's responsibility. Yeah, in the same way that you use an external service provider to facilitate a bunch of your technical controls and your remote administration does not Mm -hmm. alleviate you from the entirety of the set of requirements in 800-171. Hosting an application in a FedRAMP certified cloud does not alleviate that application of what it has responsibilities for, period. That's, I mean, in the... In the um, the CCSK, I've got the book around here somewhere. The certif- the certificate of cloud security knowledge entry level free cert free resource, uh, you know, uh, uh, material that everybody should check out from Cloud Security Alliance. Like the first chapter is the shared responsibility model mm-hmm. of cloud computing, and so that's exactly how the controls are supposed to work in a shared responsibility setup: is that you're able to inherit them. Yeah. And what this was a great demonstration of exactly how to um, portray inheritance properly yeah. to defend your implementation, to build your assurance claim, to get your certification. Way to go, Microsoft. Yeah, Once in, as we, I mean, we've talked about it. There's not a lot of those floating around, right? So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's a good story. I think it, it's uh, easy to digest. We'll link the press release. People should check it out for sure. No doubt. So in in other news, there was uh, in in rulemaking, there was a rule that came out. It was not the CMMC rule. It was not the other part of the DODAM rule that we're waiting on. It was a rule that DOD issued directly related to 
SPRS to the mm-hmm. Supplier Performance Risk System system, the SPRS system, if you will, right? So uh, this made uh, this got this made the rounds on LinkedIn. It got a lot of attention because the 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 basis of the rule essentially is updating all the guidance and updating all the information and getting it all in one spot so that the contract workforce can use the SPRS system to holistically evaluate the risk of suppliers to the DOD. We have to upload our summary scores after you assess or get assessed against 171 and generate a score under the DODAM 531 point weighting system. You mm-hmm. upload that score to SBRS to reflect your strategic cybersecurity posture in the language of the rule. So when this rule came out, people started scrolling, looking for a mention of cybersecurity or scores or NIST controls. And they kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And it's not in there. And so friend of the show, father of CMMC, Robert Mesker, had a wonderful LinkedIn post where he went through and read the like 35 page SPRS manual and said, there is no criteria outlined in this updated manual that considers the cybersecurity posture or summary level DODAM score of a supplier in any way whatsoever. And everyone's mm-hmm. sort of standing around looking at each other going, what's ha- what happened here? How is there this big omission inside of this rule? And it's it's not covered. And you could see that in the comments on, on Bob's post, which we'll link to. So two things kind of just off the top. First and foremost, any clause that comes out that has DFARS attached to it doesn't automatically include cybersecurity. DFARS is a big catalog. It is a universe of stuff that does not automatically mean that it is tied to the world of CMMC and NIST. <laughs> and the second thing is, is, is it such a bad thing that this rule didn't include cybersecurity? It's good and bad at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what I said to, to on Bob's post on LinkedIn, is that it's a... It's disappointing that we're not at the point where we have credible cybersecurity scores that we can attach to people to get accurate risk attached to a supplier, right? But it's also a sigh of relief because we know, and DIPCAC has shown us through different data studies, that there is a demonstrative difference in between a self-attested score and then one that is semi-validated in a medium Mm -hmm. level score, right? And then even more of a difference in differential from a medium to a high. So ultimately, if that were in the rule right now and contract officers were evaluating risks of potential bidders, right? And somebody completely lied. We got a 110. You don't know. There's no way to, I wouldn't put my job on the line for that. It's not a good system, right? It's not a good system. As as Nick Del Rosso and DIBCAC findings at presentations CS2, presentations on the AB Town Hall uh, have shown, uh, the SPRS scores are not a... a very good indicator of the risk of a supplier. So to your point, it isn't necessarily a bad thing that it's not included. However, I have a theory for why this seemingly controversial omission is actually there. And it has to do with understanding the rulemaking process, right? So if you Mm -hmm. go look at this rule, uh, we're only looking at this rule once it was published. But like we said before, a published rule is the end of the rulemaking process, not the mm-hmm. start of the rulemaking process. And like we talked about in the GAO report on the effect of elections and transition periods between administrations, sometimes rulemaking can take years as mm-hmm. we are 
all experiencing currently with the CMMC rule. So the SPRS rule that we're talking about here uh, came out as a proposed rule in August of 2020. And mm-hmm. there was a public comment period of 60 days, which then closed. And so when that rule, that proposed rule was published, there had been years of work leading up to that published rule. And to get mm-hmm. back to what we talked about earlier, the irony is, is that when a rule is published, it tends to be pretty much done because mm-hmm. the legal obligation and the inertia of the government is we want to generate a rule that is as accurate as possible so the public knows what they're commenting on. Sure. The problem is, is that 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 undermines the leverage that public comments have to change the rule, which was the whole point of public comments in the first place. Anyways, so you had this rule that was in process for two years, 2018, leading up to the time that it was published in August of 2020. Well, the CMMC rule that had two parts to it, one part, the DODAM, DOD assessment methodology side, that sort of bolted cybersecurity evaluation scores onto SPRS out of nowhere wasn't published until the end of 2020 after this rule was already done. And so as a result, uh, we got this rule for CMMC and DODAM and SPRS stuff that didn't get added into the world of SPRS until the SPRS update rule was already finished effectively. Now, because it takes so long to process and adjudicate those comments on the proposed SPRS rule from August of 2020, we're not seeing it until just now. So when it comes out now, you think, wait a minute, we've been talking about SPRS and cybersecurity for two years. This rule shows up and they didn't include it. It must not be a priority. I think that because of that that gap in how long rulemaking takes, we are only seeing the very end of that rulemaking cycle that was basically over by the time DOD started including SPRS and cybersecurity together. Really, I mean, that's, that, that is a plausible theory. What mm-hmm. it means for people is... I think that when you get the updated DODAM rule, they're going to say bolted on to SPRS in addition to this rule, right? Like just because it's not in this rule doesn't mean it's not happening because there's another rule, the DODAM side of the 2020 rule that is getting ready to also go final. But the, the, the development timelines of the two rules didn't line up and sync with each other. And if, you know, this is the, the real, the problem is if they found out in the development of the SPRS rule that came out in August 2020, that there was this other thing going on in the world Mm -hmm. of CMMC and DODAM, and they wanted to go back and change that rule, they would have to restart that other rulemaking process and do the two to three year cycle over again, because they would be changing what they showed the public and the public was able to comment on. So they're not going to go back and restart that other rulemaking that they're done with now, right? So I think it's that gap in the development timeline of the rules that that caused LinkedIn to go into a uh, a fit because they said, what's happening here? It's, it's not included in the rule. It must not be a priority. I think there's a simpler explanation for why that happened. I mean, I can understand why the the response was what it was like, you know, obviously we're in this, the, the midst of evaluating supplier risk and you're talking about cybersecurity being a huge risk. 
in the supply chain. Oh yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it's one very one, confusing know? when you see it, where you're like risk, risk, risk. SPRS score, score, scores. All Dibcac does is talk about SPRS because that's the part that they that's the part that they deal with, right? I mean, they they took a system that had nothing to do with evaluating cybersecurity and basically bolted a feature onto it mm -hmm. and said, you are now going to receive and store cybersecurity scores. So um, yet for them to not mention it in the SPRS rule seems very out of place, but I think that's probably the reason why that occurred. Uh, and I would expect that when the DODAM rule that was broken off of the CMMC rule from 2020 is done, it'll go back and it'll say bolted on to SPRS you just updated the rule, so on and so forth. So I think it's it's an interesting story. Definitely read Bob's post. Definitely check out the information on it for sure. But uh, I don't I don't think that it's actually uh, some sort of uh, referendum on the fact that the DoD is reversing its stance on uh, CMMC, which you know basically leads us into talking about Stacy's CS2 talk, where she talks about the DoD's position on various cybersecurity efforts, including CMMC and the use of SPRS. CS2 Huntsville's in the books, my man. It is. It is. It was the a great ninth, event. The ninth CS2 now, longest running, longest running industry uh, and security conference focused specifically on helping to facilitate cybersecurity and compliance uh, in the, for defense industrial based contractors. It's been going on for years now. And I've been lucky enough to be on both sides of the fence for it as a, employee of Summit 7 and as a member of the CMMC ecosystem um, for seven of those nine. So I feel like I'm yeah. a uh, grizzled veteran. I don't, I don't know if we have a list of people who've been to all of them. We need to find out because uh, you're definitely up there, I think, in terms of probably. I don't know if we have people who've been to all of them. We should. I'm going to write that down. We should find out. We if should, you've been to all of them, let us know in the comments. We should start passing out like special flair, right? Like. For sure. If you've been you to all of them, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't and, been to all of them. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was a jam-packed event. I think all the content from top to bottom was great. I, I particularly enjoyed your session, Ryan Bonner, you. obviously. Um, and yeah, then the there session, were... Uh, my full session's on YouTube. We'll add the link so people should check it out. I think that there are a couple that are really industry impacting or uh, pertinent to the industry that I, I feel we would be remiss if we didn't touch on them. And one of them you know, the first one that we got to get to is um, Stacy B, Stacy yep. Boschanik, the Queen B, right? I mean, and she is she is in charge of everything. You know, she is not only in charge of the CMMC program office, uh, but she is also in charge of the <clears throat> DIB CS program. So mm -hmm. all of the DOD tools and services that they offer as uh, cybersecurity as a service to facilitate security and compliance for industrial based contractors. You know, she is in charge of both of those programs as the chief of defense industrial based cybersecurity in the Pentagon. So, I mean, she's very amiable. She's a very nice person. She's easy to talk to. She's very generous with her time, um, but she is a very senior DOD official. And so I think sometimes maybe her easygoing nature, uh, people maybe don't take it quite as seriously, but it's very important to listen closely to what she says and doesn't say. Because it is a very strong indicator of what's going on and what's coming around the corner and what's a priority and no longer a priority. Um, so I think that that's, uh, you know, that's why we're so lucky to have her at CS2. Especially, as you always say, when she shows up and she goes, I don't have any slides. We're going to do 50 minutes of Q&A. Uh, I don't know if people remember, but 
other SESs, other senior executive service ranked DOD civilians within that same DOD CIO's office. They don't do that. Mm-hmm. Other SESs in other DOD and undersecretary departments, they don't do that. They're under no obligation to do that whatsoever. And so we're very, very lucky to have uh, that kind of communication and transparency. Contrary to what we've heard in the past, um, the DOD through Stacy is very communicative about the nature of what's going on compared to an agency like DHS, who is coming out with their own CUI rule akin Mm -hmm. to the rule that created DFAR 7012. They released their proposed rule in 2017 and they have said nothing since then. And their final rule is expected, you know, this year and you won't find out what's in that final rule until it's published because there is no Stacy at DHS that shows up and explains what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what's going on and what are the problems to the extent possible that she can give those details. So yeah, I mean, it's wonderful when she shows up. Okay. So uh, based off of Stacy's session, there were kind of like five big things that jumped out to me, which was, uh, which was pretty crazy. So we're going to have all of the relevant clips and everything coming out from Stacy's session, as well as from Nick Del Rosso's session. And basically everything that DOD would say, you know, we're not trying to hoard that information from people who weren't able to make it or, or have access to the recording. So you guys can check that out on the YouTube channel uh, as those clips uh, get produced and split up. That way you don't have to listen to a whole, you know, two hours of stuff. It'll just be the mm-hmm. relevant sections. But uh, Stacy's prepared remarks, uh, you know, if you will, were only like seven minutes long. So we just pushed uh, that video out uh, today here at the end of March. And there was a lot of information packed into those seven minutes. And the way that she opened Indeed. up was very interesting because she said, uh, you know, she basically asked the audience, does anyone here need to know the history of CMMC, why CMMC is a thing or you know how we got here? Does anybody need the refresher? And so she sort of moved very quickly on from that idea because most of the people in the room didn't need it, but I viewed that as sort of the first interesting part of her very short prepared statements as a signal that the department uh, and a lot of people listening uh, when it comes to CMMC no longer need to be convinced about the nature of CMMC. They don't need to be sold on the idea. They don't need to be persuaded. They're really, it, the question these days is no, not really why CMMC? The questions now are all how CMMC, right? What will it look like when the rule is out? How do I meet these requirements? Mm-hmm. You know, how questions rather than why questions, which really dictated, I think, the last two years, the early days of CMMC especially was why, why, why is it real? Convince me it's real. Why is this a thing? And uh, so I took that as sort of a signal from Stacy, where she's like, I don't need to explain this anymore, right? I'm sure if people had asked her or if she was in the front of a different audience, she would explain it. But mm-hmm. I, I thought that was a bigger deal than uh, she sort of uh, made it out to be. Uh, and, that, and that sort of lines up, too, with you know some of the congressional testimony that happened throughout the, uh, the month of March from John Sherman, the DOD CIO, from the director of DISA, from some of the folks in the office of DOD small business programs, mm-hmm. and from Congress members, which you know we'll get into the details later. But the real takeaway is 
CMMC doesn't get brought up very often. And that's a, an interesting data point because it doesn't get brought up very often because it's no longer a controversial topic when they are going through congressional testimony. They go, CMMC, what's going on? And they go, rulemaking stuck in red tape. And we've made some changes and we're helping the dib. And they go, sounds great. Next question, right? And so it is uh, It is with Stacy's sort of tone at the intro of her session and the tone that you can see in the testimony about things around CMMC, it is not a hot button sort of big polarizing issue like it was at the start. Or I think maybe people who aren't watching those testimony or listening closely to Stacy would imagine it would be, right? Seems sure. like a much more polarizing topic for the people in the industrial base. The closer you get to the beltway, the less of a controversial idea uh, it seems to be. So um, she went in and she gave a quick update on rulemaking. She said that the rule is still waiting to go to OMB, which we know, right? So like we've talked about before, it has to go to OMB for regulatory review, and then it gets mm -hmm. published. It'll be proposed or interim final, at which point that will dictate when it becomes effective, either this summer, 2023, or next summer, 2024. Uh, one of the things that she mentioned, which I haven't heard her say in a while, is once the rule leaves DOD and goes to OMB, the DOD can no longer comment or speculate about yeah. that rule. They have They've to go that. into, yeah, they have to go into radio silence. And this will be very important for people to remember because the last time that DOD went radio silent was the majority of 2021 when they were reviewing the nature and the status of the CMMC program. And what ended up happening was because Stacy was not out there constantly doing these webinars and events and updates, a lot of people took that as confirmation bias that CMMC wasn't happening mm -hmm. or that CMMC was going away. So we are going to have another period of radio silence from DOD. And so don't be fooled into thinking that silence means it's not happening. In fact, it's even more serious this time because they will be silent as a result of sending the rule to OMB once and for all. So just be aware of that when it comes up in that when you hear DOD go silent all of a sudden, and you'll hear us talking about it a bunch, it is because the rule is almost out, not the rule is going away, right? Mm -hmm. It's just this weird kind of a thing. Uh, let's see. So the other thing that she said is we don't know if it will be an interim final rule or a proposed rule. And, you know, when we released our rulemaking, understanding rulemaking in 2023 for CMMC video at the end of January, a lot of people got upset with me on LinkedIn and other forums because I was making the case that we don't know if it's going to be interim final or proposed because ultimately OMB gets to make that decision. Now, there are data points and little clues everywhere about whether it's proposed or whether it's interim final, but we don't know, right? We will not know until it's published. If you listen to DOD, they will say, we want an interim final rule. If you listen to the rumor mill, if you read the unified agenda, that would indicate that it would be proposed. So which one is it? We don't know. Which one would you rather it be? There's trade-offs to both, like we talked about in previous episodes. But Stacy reiterated again, once it goes to OMB, they make the decision, not DOD. If DOD got to make a decision, 
we would have an interim final rule because that's what they want. They want to get started. We've been waiting on this for two or three years now. So clearly DOD doesn't get to make the decision because they would have made it already. They've already told us what they would have made. So if you don't believe me, don't at me. Hear it from Stacy herself in the video that's on the YouTube channel, right? She'll tell you herself. We don't know what the status will be. You know, make up your mind and 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 your best educated guess based off the info in the video and the town hall and what Stacy said. So just something for people to know about. Uh, the next thing that she said that was very interesting was uh, we're not going to have any gotchas in the rule. And this it echoes something that she has said many, many times since the end of 2021 when DOD was able to start speaking publicly again. And she specifically said, like she has said before, the requirements to implement 800-171 are not changing because that is the result of DFAR 7012, which was the output of a separate rulemaking process, which ended in 2016. This rulemaking for CMMC establishes the CMMC program rule, which is an assessment program for those requirements. The entire program for CMMC is predicated on the idea that it assesses the requirements in 171. So the idea that the requirements would somehow fundamentally change or go away does not compute in the world of CMMC. And she said that, you know, after the 2021 review, when CMMC 2.0 came out, and that's what the DOD decided to do, uh, you know, they decided to directly align CMMC with NIST SP 800-171. Uh, and one of the reasons why they decided to do that and get rid of the delta of additional controls that DOD really wanted is because companies on paper have said that they have been doing it since 2017. So it shouldn't be a controversial thing when rulemaking happens and we get to see the rule and Congress is going to ask about the rule and everybody is going to evaluate the rule, they can say, we haven't added anything new. We are only here to assess the things that you've been required to do since then and that you attested to doing. If you didn't do it, that's not the rules problem. That's a different problem. And so you can already see that that's what they're going to say. No gotchas, no changes, no new controls. If NIST revises, the requirements and there's additional ones in there. You can watch the presentation that I gave trying to kind of predict what those might be. That's a NIST problem, right? That's not mm -hmm. the DOD's CMMC problem. So, you know, she got through those and then she said, okay, well, you know, you said you had implemented 171, but we know, right, that that didn't happen for various reasons. And, you know, that's sort of water under the bridge at this point. So she asked how many businesses in here, small or otherwise, are struggling with their requirements in 800-171. And lots of people raise their hands because lots mm -hmm. of people are struggling with 800-171 for various reasons, right? Cost, burden, impact, complexity, technicality, uh, the language that they use, you know, whatever the, ha the reasons happen to be. And this is where she jumped into a pattern of statements that you will hear from John Sherman, from other folks at DOD, from other offices in the Pentagon, not just from Stacy, not just from CMMC. And this is where I want people to pay very close attention to what she says in the video, because this is what I think will be in the rule when it comes to the answer about what DOD is doing to help the industrial base, to meet their requirements, support them meeting their requirements, help them facilitate meeting their requirements. She mentioned Project Spectrum, 
She mentioned the Defense Cybercrime Center, DC3. She mentioned the NSA Cyber Collaboration Center. She mentioned the tools and services in the DIB-CS program, right? And that's it. She said they're all free. They're all easy to, or somewhat easy to get a hold of. This is what the DOD is providing. This is what other agencies are providing. This is what facilitates cybersecurity. This is what we are doing to help the DIB. Now, a couple things, right? They have said those same things now for years. They have said these things <clears throat> on every event. They have said them in every webinar. They have said them in press releases. They have said them on podcasts. They have said them in interviews. They have said them in congressional testimony to both houses in various committees and subcommittees very consistently. Different DOD officials that have come and gone have said the same things in those situations. Project Spectrum, DC3, DIBCS, NSA Cyber Collaboration Center. That's it. That's it. So that is a very strong indicator that that is what they will continue to say. It's a very strong indicator that that is sort of the totality of what they are going to provide. And that's great. But as we know, uh, you know, Jason, you have done some pretty deep research into this topic. Those tools and services, while they are great at what they do, are not holistic solutions for facilitating compliance with these requirements. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, I think that's generously putting it. Um, I They're free, right? So first they and foremost, free. they're free. And the, the next thing that, you know, probably should preface what I'm going to say is I do recommend anybody that has these free resources available to them to actually exercise their ability to get them. And the reason why is because although they may not be holistic um, approaches to satisfying CMMC requirements, they do provide extra elements of security, extra elements of defense, yeah. detectability, and things like that to it. But I will tell you that just based off of the research that I've done, you could get every free tool in the book and still have a long journey ahead of you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that... But, um... oh, no, I was going to say, but if you were to complete an implementation and then go and get these free resources attached to you, your organization would be in a much better better position oh, yeah. than an organization that just implemented yeah. the minimum baseline. The tools we and talk resources, about this all the time. Yeah. The tools and resources that they offer are good at what those tools and resources do specifically. Correct. And those tools and resources, while good at what they do specifically, do not represent the ability to facilitate the totality of 800-171 as it exists today or as it will exist under 171 Rev 3. And therefore, those tools and services that they talk about in the same breath as helping companies with CMMC don't help with all of CMMC or even a majority of CMMC. And that's fine. We just all need to make sure that we're on the same page to know that they're free, they're good at what they do. You also have things outside of those tools and offerings that the DOD just isn't going to help you with. And it's very apparent at this point that they're not going to help you with. And so when the rule comes out and they say, this is what we got, I think we can already kind of see what they're going to describe. It's going to be Project Spectrum, DC3, NSA Cyber Collab, and the DIBCS program. There's some of those tools and services that are offered that are 100% dependent 
on things that you would implement as a part of implementing oh, yeah. a 171 environment. And so if you don't have those things in place, those free resources right. are free resources that are doing nothing for you. So yeah. uh, I, I think yeah. it's all, you know, take it with a grain of salt, still a great offering, still things that people could use, but I had no means a holistic solution to, to, yeah. to it's something that people definitely need to definitely need to, to pay attention to when they're, when the deity is talking about it and something that I strongly predict will be, in the text of the rule where they say we have all these services and offerings to help facilitate it. If mm -hmm. not in the text of the rule, it will sound very similar to a lot of the testimony that DOD officials gave to various committees and subcommittees in Congress this month. There were two different sessions that John Sherman, DOD CIO, participated in. And then there was a session of all of the representatives from the services and DOD itself for the Office of Small Business Programs that all testified to Congress. And it was, a you know, they're talking about security in general. They're talking about uh, security in the DIB. They're talking about strategies of what's going on. And the same talking points come up in that testimony, testimony to Congress as Stacy's very casual presentation to an audience at CS2. It transcends the audience. It transcends administrations it, it transcends administration appointed officials right it is the same story over and over again so expect that now what i find very interesting and we'll link to these uh recordings of all the testimony if people want to watch it highly recommended is back to that point i know it's 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 like reading it's only slightly more exciting than reading this publications is li listening to congressional testimony but you know what do people do with all the time they got? So anyway, Jacob, why are you sweating? Are you watching cops? Nope. It's, watching it's congressional the worst. <laughs> are you watching cops? Yeah. No, I'm watching congressional <laughs> testimony. <laughs> C-SPAN's on. <laughs> yeah, take it seriously. <laughs> so the, the interesting part about all the testimony is what they don't say. So back to that point about how CMMC is no longer viewed as a controversial topic. It just doesn't get asked about very often. And when they give answers, the answers don't throw red flags to Congress and they just move on. Right. Mm -hmm. That is a that is a signal that people should pay attention to, because if you go to the audience in 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 some of these events like CS2 or other events, people are a lot more upset than the uh, tone and rhetoric used in testimony from Congress. And everybody's expecting Congress to start slapping DUD around about the impact that this program is going to have. And that does not appear to be the vibe that's going on in these sessions. So, for right. example, when John Sherman was testifying to House and Senate Armed Services Committee, I believe, were the two. We'll have the links to the right ones. He's talking about his job as the DUD CIO. And he's saying, hey. You know, we're doing zero trust strategy. We're completely reforming what's going on. We're doing multi-cloud tenancy all the way out to the tactical edge from the Pentagon itself to a helo squadron in Guam somewhere, right? We are going through and completely changing our cloud strategy, our zero trust strategy, our AI strategy. John Sherman, to his credit, has done a lot of stuff to change the way that DoD operates. And he's been very successful at his job. You know what they also mention in line with zero trust strategy, AI strategy, 
cloud strategy. The fourth one is CMMC. Hmm. So it is, it is not only not viewed as a controversial topic in these sessions, it is also viewed as on par with the other three major defining factors of the DOD's CIO strategy moving forward in the future. So uh, it is a big deal, right? CMMC is a priority for the department. They did not decide to just do additional rulemaking because CMMC was like a neat idea, right? Mm -hmm. When the department says it's a priority, they mean it's a priority. Sure. When they decide to go through rulemaking, that shows you that it is a priority. When you listen to John Sherman going around the hill, giving testimony, and everybody wants to talk about AI and zero trust, high-speed, cool guy stuff, and they also mention CMMC, that is a signal that it is a real priority and that it is absolutely happening. Wait, so you're saying that CMMC isn't high-speed, cool guy stuff? Uh, you know, I mean, compared to, like, the buzzwords, I don't know if CMMC would really rank on Family Feud as a guess for this is a cool high-speed cybersecurity thing. It would be, like, the number five, like, one person voted for it. It would be me. <laughs> Compared to, you know, I, you know, you're never going to see CMMC like on a Gartner chart somewhere, but you're going to see zero trust AI infused, you know, robot cyber or whatever. True. But for it to be included for this vanilla compliance program thing to be included in the prepared opening statements of DOD CIO to Congress and for Congress to be like, yeah, sounds good. Right. That is not the vibe that you get when you go to events and you talk to the dib and they go, Congress is going to hear about this. DOD is going to, you know, they're not going to keep getting away with this. If you go watch these uh, testimonies, that is not the way that that conversation is playing out. And as we draw closer and closer to the rule, it seems to be more and more of a foregone conclusion. So mm -hmm. we'll link to those testimonies. Very, very interesting is what's going on. One last bit about the testimony that people should know. When the DOD talks about what they've done to help the DIB, it is not just the talking points around DIB CS, DC3, Project Spectrum, tools and services. It is also the changes that they made to the CMMC program. So when they go to Congress and Congress hears that there's this burdensome over-the-top program, this draconian thing that's going to crush the DIB and the supply chain and small businesses, <clears throat> they turn around and they say, hey, DOD, we know that you need assurance over these data flows in the supply chain. We're the ones that told you to do it in 2020 in the NDAA. What are you doing to make it easier and better for small businesses in the supply chain? They say Project Spectrum, DC3, NSA Cyber Collab, DibCS, and after the rule came out, we took all of 2021 and we got rid of the Delta 20. We got rid of process maturity. We added POAMs. We have a waiver mechanism. We reduced the number of companies that need to have an external assessment. We're only assessing companies that have the CUI that you and the DOD cares about. We only have DOD employees doing the audits at the most critical companies at CMMC level three and everybody else that's COTS or anybody that doesn't have CUI doesn't really have to worry about it. And we align the standard directly to a 
set of requirements that has already been through rulemaking and approved and gone through everything and that everybody attested to saying that they're already doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's an allowable cost. So when you have five minutes as a representative in Congress in a one hour session to try to get to the bottom of what's going on, that sounds like a pretty compelling case, especially when you're about to walk into a classified session and somebody's going to tell you about all of the nefarious cybersecurity issues going on in the defense industrial base that are going to super duper freak you out. So if you shift perspective and put yourself in the perspective of what's going on in those hearings, then uh, it is a much different conversation. So the DOD in the rule, you can already feel what's going to be in the rule, has a very strong case to say we're offering these tools and services. We made these changes. We went through rulemaking again. We listened to all the public comments. Stacy's gone to 5,000 different public events and webinars and podcasts. When they do that, they are building the case that they listened to industry and were very communicative. So I know we're dwelling on this point. I would tell everybody, watch those hearings and listen to what they're saying and what Congress is not saying. And don't be surprised when the rule comes out because what Stacy says is not unique. <clears throat> Anyways. This is, yeah, this is just more further justification that not only does the national strategy align and, and actions are being carried out to obviously enact the national strategy to, 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 to put it into place, um, but it's also a priority topic when it comes oh, absolutely. to yeah. the things. Well, that, are- that was the other part is everybody goes, well, what about the Office of Small Business Programs? They don't work for Stacey. <clears throat> mm-hmm. They don't work for John Sherman. That's a different office in the Pentagon. And uh, Mr. Mitha, who is the DOD director of Office of Small Business Programs, <clears throat> was, uh, I think it was testifying to the House Oversight Committee. And he had mm-hmm. the uh, rep for Office of Small Business Programs for the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, who was there for Space Force as well. And M- Mr. Mitha's opening statement, we're helping the defense industrial base who is getting hacked every day and losing controlled and classified information by funding and operating Project Spectrum. So even the people in this Office of Small Business Programs, SMB-focused people in the DOD go, yeah, those tools and solutions and those changes to the program were helpful. And the people in Congress that they testified to went, yeah, sounds great. So I feel like that's what's going to be in the rule. Like they've said it a lot over the years, Mm -hmm. and they're saying it more and more and more as we get closer and closer to them sending that rule out of DOD over to OMB. So when you hear Stacey just give a quick seven-minute update, you go, oh, she didn't really say very much. Uh, She said a lot in terms of the the substance of what she was saying, if you you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, what she said lined up with the testimony. Something else that she talked about was the FAR CUI rule. And this is an entire topic that I talk about a little bit in the recording of my session from CS2. It could be a podcast all on its own. Effectively, the FAR CUI rule is one part of a three-part plan that was designed to implement the overall CUI program. So when President Obama wrote the CUI executive order in 2010, the plan was three pieces. You were going to have a regulation that made all of the federal agencies implement a CUI program within those agencies so that they would all control and mark the CUI across the executive branch in the same way 
so that they could share and protect that information across these agencies, right? Okay. Then in order to make sure that they were protecting the information properly, they needed to come up with a minimum baseline, which is why they developed 800-171. Well, when those data go out into the various supply chains downstream from the agencies, how are you going to require all the suppliers and contractors to meet the same minimum requirements? You need an acquisition regulation. And the universal acquisition regulation for the federal government is known as the FAR, the literally the Federal Acquisition Regulation. The DFARS is the defense supplement to the FAR. D okay. and S on the FAR, defense supplement to the FAR. <clears throat> okay. So uh, we have two of the three pieces of this three-part plan. We've got 800 and we've got the CUI program that makes the agencies implement a CUI program, which is why the DOD is starting all this up, right? And other sure. agencies are starting their CUI programs up. What we don't have and what we haven't had is the FAR CUI rule itself. And that is a big problem because that was the real cornerstone of how all of these requirements were going to flow out into the supply chains, including the DOD supply chain. So much of what the DOD has done with the DFARS program and the CMMC program, trying to get their hands around their supply chain specifically, has been waiting for the FAR to come in and say, this is normal across all agencies. So Stacy said that the FAR CUI rule at long last, after being missing now for six additional years beyond when we were expecting it, uh, is close to uh, coming out. Hasn't gone set to OMB just yet, but the federal CISO council is a meeting that she went to immediately after CS2, and they were there to talk about the FAR CUI rule. And so if you want to know, you know, hey, where what is this FAR CUI rule thing? You can find mentions of it. There, there are like little bits uh, uh, and mentions about it everywhere. So one of my favorite things to do is, when I read NIST publications is to read the footnotes, to read the footnotes. And if you open NIST SP 800-171 to page three, there is a, a sentence in there that says the recommended security requirements in this publication are intended for use by federal agencies in appropriate contractual vehicles or other agreements established between those agencies and non-federal organizations. All right. Then they say in CUI guidance and the CUI federal acquisition regulation, the FAR, the CUI executive agent, the National Archives, the, the people in charge of the program, will address determining compliance with cybersecurity requirements. So they say in the CUI FAR, they will address how you determine compliance. We don't have a CUI FAR. We don't have a FAR rule. And then in the footnotes, they say NARA, the uh, Archives and Records Administration, as the CUI executive agent, plans to sponsor a single FAR clause that will apply the requirements of the federal CUI regulation and NIST SP 800-171, the other two parts of the plan, to contractors. Until the FAR clause is in place, this is in NIST SP 800-171, by the way. In the footnotes. In the footnotes. Until the FAR clause is in place, <clears throat> the requirements in NIST SP 800-171 may be referenced in federal contracts consistent with federal law and regulatory requirements, which is exactly what DOD is doing in their little sphere of influence with their supply chain through DFARS, 
and through the CMMC program. And the last part that's of interest is footnote 11 that says NIST SPA 171A provides assessment procedures to determine compliance with the CUI security requirements. So that means that the FAR CUI rule will come out and say 800 is the minimum standard for protecting CUI, and 800-171A is how you determine compliance with it, which is exactly what DOD is doing. So it's very interesting to hear her say that they are having those discussions. Again, another signal that CMMC is not the end or an anomaly or the only thing that's going on here. This is a much larger program that affects the entire federal government. CMMC is just one cog in the wheel of the agencies trying to get their hands around uh, how you have assurance over CUI and the supply chain. And the FAR CUI rule is the last piece that we're missing. Again, she just said this sort of in passing, right? This was like a five-minute segment. There's a lot behind what she said here with the FAR CUI rule. I'm kind of mad that you stole my cog in the wheel. That's what I was going to throw. It's just one small piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. Um, but to have the awareness that they have to discuss all the other elements is absolutely great. Yeah, and the last part that she had that I found very interesting is she said she's there to brief the federal CISO council in their conversation about the FAR CUI rule about CMMC, but she explicitly said she is not there to suggest that every agency adopt CMMC. Now, we've covered in previous episodes, like the National Nuclear Regulatory uh, Agency, they have plans to require CMMC. We've heard other agencies uh, have plans, but... DOD is not advocating that everybody have to use it because there's politics and there's turf wars and, you know, they have sovereignty over their little part of the world. And so they kind of get to do what they want to. So um, she even sort of threw some shade at the other agencies, uh, which I enjoyed quite a bit because as we know, the DHS CUI rule that's getting ready to come out allegedly doesn't require third-party certification. It allows self-attestation. And she specifically said, we already know that this doesn't, doesn't work. work. Yep. We already know it doesn't work. The DOD has proved out that you do not have any assurance that your requirements over your data are implemented in your supply chain if you just take self-attestation as the only method for figuring out if stuff is implemented. And right. so she basically said, we already figured out that, quote, that doesn't work too good, end quote. So if agencies like, I assume, DHS want to do it, then good luck to you. But, you know, you're just going to repeat the same lessons that DOD already learned. So, her, you know, her whole session was fascinating. We're going to have all the questions and, and answers uh, from her segment come out. There's like almost an hour of questions and answers. But that seven-minute segment that Stacy had was full of a ton of information about what's going on, what's happened, how we got here, what's coming around the corner. Uh, if you sort of knew what to listen for. Yeah, it, it was absolutely jam-packed. And, and even the questions, I mean, the, I, I know that there was almost an hour's worth of questions, right? Like that that, were, that was answered. Like the, even the, the information that was put in there was great. But the fact that all of this was condensed into seven minutes and then you break it out and you start seeing a bigger picture, you just explain the whole picture in seven minutes worth of Stacey's commentary. Yeah, no, I thought it was really great. We got the video up, we'll link to it. Uh, people should definitely check it out. It's very, very interesting. But yeah, we'll also link to that testimony. People mm -hmm. should check that out, compare and contrast. And uh, you, know, you can kind of tell which way the winds are blowing. Okay, so Nick Del Rosso's presentation at CS2 Huntsville. Nick Del Rosso, the director of DCMA DIBCAC. Uh, Another good one. Presentations on the AB Town Hall, 
he was gracious enough to come to CS2 DC and give a presentation. And uh, he uh, gave an awesome session. We'll upload the clips and all the relevant sections on the YouTube channel so that people can check it out, even if they didn't get to go to CS2. So something interesting that Nick said in his presentation was when a organization that is undergoing an assessment is out of FIPS validated uh, baseline because they updated their patching, they don't view that as a ding, right? They don't view that as a problem because there's clearly a reason why the validated uh, 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 baseline is has been broken mm -hmm. it's because you kept up with your patching. What they said from his perspective is viewed as a problem is if the company has never even had anything in their environment that is FIPS validated or they've just never even tried. Uh, that is a different scenario than saying, yeah, you know, we use, you know, we've got our FIPS validated certificate, they updated the patch. And so now we're waiting for it to get updated. And then we've got a plan as soon as that comes by. They even updated the DOD assessment methodology scoring system to reflect this, where FIPS validated crypto was originally a five point control, but now it has the option of being worth three points if you are using crypto, but it isn't, the validation has not caught up to it yet. Right. So I thought that was an interesting perspective that he included. Yeah, because the FIPS validation process for, for a module is much longer than, you know, the frequency of zero-day attacks or things oh, like that. Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, so, um, it is a common sense thing. It's one of those things that they... Uh, At the, the very least, you're getting Windows updates uh, the first Tuesday of every month, yep. and it might take way, way longer to get a, uh, a, a crypto module validated. Yeah, and they're saying that these... Um, when when the when they come across these scenarios, they're they're not obviously pinging you. You're not um, automatically being determined as not meeting the the requirements. What's happening is that they're saying it's a temporary deficiency that's out of your control. Um, right. and, and it's like a common sense approach, right? We, and that's we, what POAMs that are for. I mean, that's yep. that's what a POAM. That's what the <clears throat> a POAM is a control, right? In the catalog of of NIST controls, a POAM is a control, and that right. is what a POAM is designed to do. You have this temporary deficiency for a legitimate reason, park it on the POAM, and that's mm -hmm. perfectly normal. So, you know, it it's nice to see that, you know, DIPCAC agrees with this, but um, but NIST is gonna have to address this in the revision to 171 Rev 3. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna have to finally say, you know, what are what do you want us everybody to do here? Personally, I think what needs to happen is the CMVP program, the cryptographic module validation program that you that is the program that validates crypto modules and is in this list of approved modules uh needs to have a massive increase in resources and funding because mm -hmm. uh if you really duly true care about validated crypto modules you cannot have the program that does the validation lag so far behind that people are constantly out of validated baselines so yeah. either you're just willing to look the other way and therefore it probably shouldn't even be a control anyways or we're going to need to dedicate time and resources to expanding the constraint, which is the CMVP program. So I feel like NIST is not, uh, they are not eager to move away from validated crypto. Mm -hmm. The idea that a validated module is better than an unvalidated module is true, right? You don't have a validation that the module is operating correctly. That is 100% true. But if you can never get the validations caught up to the real world, then it doesn't matter anyways. So you're just going to have to dump more money and resources, but NIST is, you know, a relatively small organization in the, uh, the hierarchy of the size of various elements of the government. 
So I don't know if that's a budget request thing or how that needs to work, but the CMVP program needs a lot more resources. It needs a lot more funding. It needs a lot more automation. And, uh, and that's, that's probably the only way that you're going to be able to really make that problem less icky. Right. Um, but, but we'll see what they say in Rev 3. I, I don't predict that they'll move away from it, um, but, but we never know. The, you know. the word on the street is, is that we're supposed to see that thing late spring. So that means like before June-ish. So sometime between now and June. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, we could get a tip uh, and a, you know, an idea in that initial draft of 171, what they're talking about with FIPS validation here pretty quickly. So Okay. So, yeah, so something else that Nick talked about uh, after FIPS was the second most common other than satisfied control, and that was multi-factor authentication. So I found this to be very interesting because unlike FIPS-validated crypto modules, which no one likes and uh, no one in the real world typically recommends and everyone has a kind of a hard time justifying, right. MFA is the opposite of that. It is universally recommended. It mm-hmm. is considered to be basic table stakes, basic cyber hygiene kind of a control, no matter who you talk to, no matter how technical or compliancy or what agency, what framework, whatever you're trying to do, MFA is uh, probably on. When we talked about people posting controlled and classified information on video game forums, those accounts to log in to your video game forum account probably use MFA, right? Yep. And it is... It is ubiquitous across what's going on, and yet it is the second most commonly missed, consistently the second most commonly missed control when DibCAC shows up and does assessments. And Nick Del Rosso said that he thinks that it's due to cost. It's due to cost, not just in you know the monetary cost, but also how to set it up, how to configure it, how to maintain it. Most of the companies that are subject to these requirements typically don't have somebody on staff who knows how to deploy an MFA solution from scratch, um, let alone how to maintain it and administer it. So uh, it just doesn't get done regardless of its security validity. A lot of the um, talk when the first time that these numbers came around, and this was about, I think the first episode of this podcast. So um, the first time that these numbers came around and were presented by DIPCAC, the, part of the conversation that was around it was that it wasn't people weren't just necessarily doing it. They weren't doing it appropriately. Right. And so they would have one of the examples that was given is that all the endpoints would have MFA attached to them, but then all the cloud repositories, which weren't directly linked to um, the the endpoints, you know, obviously didn't have any type of MFA attached to them or vice versa. They had MFA on their O365 environment at that point. But then the endpoints where the data could transfer and there was nothing that logical boundary stopping it from happening, um, there was no MFA on that. And so um, I feel like a lot of the organizations that are not other than sat or that are other than satisfying this requirement um, aren't necessarily not giving it the college try, but they're giving it the college try and the college try is just not good enough. Yeah, no, I agree. There's a lot of reasons why it doesn't go implemented. Yep. And I found this to be kind of interesting because in a previous episode, we talked about the CISA cross-sector cybersecurity performance goals that mm-hmm. are kind of viewed in the world of compliance as like the antithesis of standards like 800-171 and 853 because they are 
high level summaries and very open ended goals, outcome oriented uh, ideas about what security, uh, good security ought to be and look like. And MFA is recommended is, yep. you know, one of the primary tenets of the CISA CPGs. And it is listed as a relatively cheap control. And it is a sort of a self-obvious thing that people would do. And yet, when you have, you know, gone the other direction and you have forced people to, and you've required people to implement MFA, it still doesn't happen. It doesn't happen when you ask nicely. It doesn't happen when you require it by contract. And that's because the underlying reasons why it's not happening have to do more with economic reasons or uh, skill reasons or uh, the ability for people to understand how to deploy MFA than it does with the validity of the control, right? So I just, I find that to be an interesting trend in the world of cybersecurity regulation and compliance, where you've got approaches like the CISA CPGs that try to take the hard edges off of security controls and compliance requirements, mm -hmm. but uh, it doesn't really matter based off of the data and findings that DIBCAC has if you use the CCCPG language for MFA or you use the NIST 800-171 language for MFA, it's still the second most commonly missed control, period. And so, uh, you know, when we have the clips and everything posted from Nick's session, I, I would encourage everyone to watch them because um, it was just very interesting when he talked about his perspective, when he said it was, it's very difficult um when they walk into a organization and they tell them your solution is not sufficient. I mean, they don't mm -hmm. want to do that, right? I mean, they're not there to try to like, ruin people's days, right? That's not what they're there to do. But, you know, it just goes to show that, um, you know, he even sort of mentioned it later on in the talk where he's like, there are people getting bad advice, right? There's people getting sold poor solutions. They're sure. getting bad advice. They are getting kind of taken for a ride. Mm -hmm. And then the DIBCAC auditors have to show up and they have to tell them that the money that they spent and the solution that they got and the technology that they deployed is not sufficient. And then on top of that, because they work for the government, they're not allowed to recommend specific solutions that would fix the problem because that wouldn't be fair. So they just have to sort of get stuck showing up and delivering bad news and then not being able to help you fix it, which I found to be a very sort of human moment from, uh, from, from Nick in his presentation, uh, which I just found it to be very, very interesting. So I think people will enjoy the clips that come out at session quite a bit. Yeah. His session was really good. A lot of details and it gives you a perspective that obviously people are seeking, um, not just the assessor's perspective from like a C3PAO, but then the government's perspective and then some of the yeah. limitations that they have. They would love yeah. to come out and be like, look, man, go get this, go get that, go get this. Yeah, do this, do it. this, click yeah, that, click yeah, that. Yeah. And they, they're just not allowed to. They're, and, their hands are tied. And we saw um, some of the feedback when, when the C3PAO assessments first started getting going and DIVCAC provided feedback on it. One of the lines of feedback was like, you can't get consulting services from us while you're getting assessed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they just can't do it. They have to take a stance and they can't align anywhere. Yeah, it was the same way when I was at the NIST MEP program. It, which is always why I find it so funny whenever uh, DOD continually recommends that the MEP program is sort of a universal solution to the problem that DIB faces. It's not that the MEP program isn't good. It's not that the MEP program and the MEP centers can't help, but because they are government grant funded organizations providing advice, they're not allowed to recommend specific solutions. Right. So 
having been one of those people that works at the MEP, not being able to recommend specific solutions, there is a limit, just like with DIDCAC, for how much help they can provide specifically. So yeah, everyone should be very careful and uh, spend some time and energy vetting who you're getting advice from and which solutions you're actually going to deploy through a managed provider or whoever, because when the assessors show up, they, their hands are tied about telling you how to fix it. So, And in a situation where you don't have a lot of expendable money, wasting money is definitely not the... It's even more uh, critical. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. smaller the organization is, the less wriggle room they have for getting it wrong. And in a lot of organizations in the supply chain, they only have one chance to get it right. Not because there's no, you know, there's POAMs allowed, but because they wouldn't have the capital to fix the problem if they deployed the wrong solution. So right. very, very important. I, I, I found Nick's uh, presentation to be very, very insightful in a way I was not expecting. So you know, one of the other um, parts of uh, Nick's presentation that I thought was very interesting was his chart that showed how DIBCAC assessments, low, medium, and high confidence assessments affect um, assessment scores on the mm -hmm. scale up to 110 points. And so remember in the DOD assessment methodology part of the 2020 CMMC rule, uh, it created this method of assessment for the 800-171 requirements, high confidence, medium confidence, low confidence assessments. High mm -hmm. confidence assessments are the DIBCAC auditors show up and they run through an in-person evaluation of all the questions in 800-171A. Mm -hmm. A medium confidence assessment is that they are probably calling you on the phone or contacting you via email and asking you to send them all of your documentation for mm -hmm. them to review in accordance with 800-171A, but not on site. Uh, and then a low confidence assessment is you conducting a self-assessment and then self-attesting to what your score happens to be and then uploading that score into SPRS. So the three parts of the DODAM assessment. So okay. what Nick showed us on his chart was when DIBCAT conducts high assessments, when they show up to actually assess an organization, <clears throat> only about 10 to 15% of those organizations actually scored a 110 uh, on their first try. So companies that had marked themselves as 110, uh, only, we don't know how many there were, only according to Nick, about 10 to 15% of them actually really truly had that score. Mm -hmm. Now, once they went through an assessment with DIBCAC and they had findings, those findings were put on a POAM and then those findings were on the POAM were closed and then they were able to update those scores. Almost 50% of the companies that DIBCAC had seen had a for real 110 fully implemented score. So the case that Nick was making was when you get that form of assistance from an external assessment via DIBCAC, you're able to actually have the real 110 score. And this gets back to our, uh, our sort of question at the top of the podcast that was asked on the town hall about, you know, what's the value of a joint surveillance assessment? Well, if you are not a company that's likely to need CMMC level three, then you're probably not going to get a visit from DIBCAC for a free assessment. And so your really only ability to get a real assessment before CMMC rulemaking is complete and you can hire a C3PAO on their own is to go through a joint surveillance assessment. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you can sort of see that when companies get that type of in-person assessment, their scores go up and the uh, validity of that score increases dramatically. So I thought that was a very interesting point that he made. So then on to the medium assessments, which are the assessments <clears throat> of just your paperwork, essentially, just your documentation, your SSP, your policies and procedures. 
done remotely. Um, they said that 79% of the initial group of companies that got these medium assessments had a 110 score that they claimed to have. But Nick said that over the last six months, those that percentage has dropped dramatically is the phrase that he used because the original set of companies that were getting medium assessments were all very large companies. And that as they started expanding the medium assessment program to smaller and smaller organizations, the number of companies that could arguably have a 110 score dropped tremendously. And he had another chart that showed that on average, it was like a 100 point swing from like around a 56 as what they claim to have on their SPRS score to a negative 58. Mm -hmm. And so it just goes to show that <clears throat> this isn't because people are trying to put in the wrong score or they're you know, doing anything nefarious or anything like that. It's typically that, like we talked about earlier, the questions that DIBCAC are going to ask you or the questions that a C3PAO are going to ask you in 800-171A are the same questions that you are supposed to ask yourself via 800-171A. So a big disparity in scores indicates to me that people are not using 800-171A to calculate their score. They're using 800-171 and they don't realize that that's a problem until DIBCAC shows up. So, you know, I think that's, that's more of what's going on rather than saying people are trying to implement the wrong score. I think they're just reading the wrong side of 800-171. Or they're not understanding exactly what they're reading, right? The, the interpretation. That, that, that too. I mean, yeah, it's there, not that 171A a... is a perfect document by any means, but I, no. I feel like a majority of it is probably, they didn't use 171A to start, but yeah, there's definitely, it's definitely not the most approachable document. Or I, I checked three of these boxes on the determination statement. I didn't get to the other three, but I'm still going to give myself credit for the control. For sure. There's a lot of for things sure. that go into it and then interpretation is part of it. But I also do believe that there's a lot of people that still don't believe or still don't know that 171A exists. Yeah. And like we talked about uh, on the previous episode when DibCAC briefed these numbers, uh, it is the fact that if you had seen an organic increase in the scores mm -hmm. from DibCAC's pilot studies across the industrial base, then the case for really turning the screws with CMMC would probably be pretty weak at that point mm -hmm. because you are seeing an increase in DIBCAC's very selective evaluation of companies, but that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. In fact, because they saw these huge variations in scores before and after a real assessment, and because the top 10 controls are still the same top 10 missed controls for six months, um, that would cause the DOD to look at that data and go, that's even more of a reason why you have to have the CMMC program, not less of a reason. Mm -hmm. So, you know, throw that on the pile with what we talked about earlier about the universal talking points between Stacey's presentations and hearings that involve DOD officials in front of Congress. You add this data and these findings, and now all of a sudden, you know, the case for CMMC uh, is pretty strong, ultimately. And this also also ties back into the points that we made about the DFAR seventy twenty four, right? Is that right. these are the scores? The SPRS in the rule, yeah, yeah. It, it, these are the scores that are going to SPRS, and we see the discrepancies in the scores, right? And 
for whatever reason, they're not reading, they don't know a document exists, or they just don't understand what's what's being said in the document. Which are all valid reasons, by the way, but yeah, they are reasons. Which are reasons that open the door for increased risk for a supplier, right? right. And yeah, so and that's a really good point, man. Yeah, if you used, if you did have that SPRS rule include these scores, you know that the scores are not reliable. And mm-hmm. so it's probably for the best that they're not in there yet, even though they probably eventually will be. Yeah, it's a good point. And then just, you know, right to round out uh, that segment that, that Nick had, you know, he had the chart for low confidence assessments and about 26% of the folks that upload their score, if I'm, if I'm interpreting his slide correctly, people can check the video, uh, said they have a perfect 110. And Nick uh didn't pull any punches uh they don't believe that right like they it's called a low confidence assessment for a reason uh it's it's just nobody believes that people have a perfect 110 if you only have a self assessment that's the that self attestation is the entire reason why you have these other forms of assessment that show up because i'm just taking your word for it so self attestation is the reason why we have cmmc <laughs> right and so they had another slide that was pretty interesting where they talked about how um, the data around the scores in the system have changed over the years. And he talked about how you had this initial wave of what he called early adopters, people who uh, knew about the standard, they knew about the program, they knew about how to calculate a score, and they rushed in and they calculated their score, they did their assessment, and they uploaded that score. And when you had that initial group of early adopters, the scores were like in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of what the the self-attested scores and the externally assessed scores, like on average, it was like in the high 90s because you had a bunch of people who knew what was going on. Right. And then as the sort of next wave of slower adopters uh, started to input their scores and get assessed either by force or uh, they eventually just came around to start doing it for whatever the reason was, those numbers dropped on average to like 65 rather than the 90s. And then as the sort of final wave of the slowest adopters, like in 2022, started uploading their scores and getting assessed, those numbers came all the way down into the 50s. And so I thought this was very interesting because, you know, Nick was very kind in, in saying, hey, you know, we want these scores to come up. We think they're going to start trending up. We think this is just sort of a natural evolution of how you get the entirety of the cross section of the dib uploading their scores. It's not always going to stay up in the nineties, which makes total sense. Mm-hmm. But from, from the perspective of somebody listening, if you're one of those early adopters and your competitors are not early adopters, there's a pretty good chance that their ability to update those scores and navigate this process and get through an assessment and achieve their CMMC certification is much worse than yours. And so if you are out in front and you are at the head of the line and you are ready to go, even if you're not doing joint surveillance, but you're ready to go once the rule is out and you can get a C3PO to give you your certification, if the numbers that DIBCAC shows about the assessments against 171 are true, the further behind your competitors are, the further behind they will probably stay. And so very strong case to be made that it is a competitive advantage to be ready for these assessments, whichever form they happen to take. Because uh, the more that your competitors don't believe it, the longer and longer it will take for them to catch up. And the longer and longer we go on, the more and more attention the DOD and contract officers and so on will be paying attention to 
these scores and certifications. So that's not the case that Nick made, obviously. He's just there from DOD to tell us the data, but that's how I read it. Yeah, I, I could interpret it that way as well. Um, we talk often about the timeline that it takes to actually prepare. And if you are one of these early adopters and you started to prepare way before, you, like you said, more than likely are way closer to the finish line than your competition. Yeah. And what that's going to mean when rule making finalizes is that you are going to have a competitive advantage yeah. over your over Yeah, your and depending on how long the line is and how the standards change while your competitors are waiting in line and you already have your cert, it might be an insurmountable advantage because of mm -hmm. scaling issues and changing standards and supply and demand dynamics. And the further and further back you are, the more and more you are pinning your hopes on the program being delayed inevitably or never happening, as we talked about earlier with all of the signals that we're getting from the system, that's just not true. So, mm. you know, develop your business strategy however you see fit, but, you know, take in all of the data points that you can make uh, an informed decision. So, you know, just sort of wrapping up the, uh, the, my, my view on Nick's session here, <clears throat> contractors are in a pretty <clears throat> difficult situation because if you evaluate yourself and you honestly put in your score into SPRS and it happens to be a very low score, um, even though the SPRS rule that came out doesn't specify it, uh, there's nothing preventing uh, contract officers or PMs or your customer from looking at that score and asking questions or not preferring mm -hmm. it, right? It is a factor that they can use. And we heard that as much in uh, the fireside chat with Lauren Ayers, who was a former contract officer from the Navy at CS2. So that would you know put pressure on you to put in a better and better and better score or even a perfect score, right? In order to look better to the people who are your customers, which is a perfectly understandable dynamic. However, sure. because we know that the people with perfect scores are almost certainly not a company with a perfect score, the higher and higher your score is, the more and more you stand out to the DIBCAC assessors. And sure. so then all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm at a higher risk of getting the assessment, which ultimately probably works out for you in the end because they're free mm -hmm. and your scores go up and you have better assurances, but you still have to go through the pain and issue of going through the assessment itself. And Nick mentions this where when they started talking more and more, you know, right around the CS2 DC timeframe, they started doing events and town halls. And they said, hey, we're going to do medium assessments and we're going to call you and we're going to ask for your SSP. They started seeing like, you know, 150, 200 companies start changing their scores, right? right. Revising them down. And so if you put in a high score to look good for your customers and then you revise it down in order to, to move out, they'll see the big shift mm -hmm. either up or down. And that will be a red flag to DibCAC to come and start asking questions about, you know, what's going on. And so... I think that the lesson there for folks is learn about 171A. It's the same set of questions. Do your assessment and your score calculation against 171A and then upload the score in accordance with 171A. And if it happens to be low, you need to fix it as fast as possible. If or fixing it very quickly and having it go up causes DibCAC to call you, you already can give them the answers because it's the same set of questions that you asked yourself. But if you artificially inflate that number and then revise it down, you're going to get assessed and they're going to start asking some questions that you probably don't want them to ask. 
So it's just a very insightful session. I was really, really happy to be able to listen to it. It's like, hey, you guys, they're trying to be slick. Uh, we saw you. Like, we noticed, yeah. we noticed <laughs> yeah. the change I mean, there's here. a lot of companies uploading SPRS scores, but there's not that many companies uploading SPRS scores. And so it's pretty easy to write the logic, especially, I mean, Nick Del Rosa is a pure science major, right? He can, he can, he can do the analysis to figure out uh, when numbers are changing in, in you know, his data set. And then just the last thing, I think, to wrap up here that I found very interesting in Nick's session was he went out and tested out chat gpt he was like oh. what is chat gpt how does this tool work people keep talking about how they're going to use it to facilitate their compliance and it is not recommended based off of its current status and the sort of average use case because he said hey write me a ssp entry for control 3.4.5 and the director of DIBCAC himself, a assessor on the DIBCAC team prior to that promotion said, this is not true. This is not correct. This mm -hmm. is the wrong information that it is feeding to you. And then he even dove deeper into chat GPT and said, hey, you got that wrong. Please refine your answer. And it gave him more wrong information, yep. according to him. And the quote that stood out to me from his presentation said, the people most likely to go to solutions like this, ChatGPT, are also the ones who are least likely to be able to identify problems in the answers. So just like you should be careful about which solutions and partners you use, you should evaluate all of those things in accordance with 800-171A, ChatGPT is not the silver bullet solution that it mm -hmm. can sometimes be made out to be. And so if you're buying or using ChatGPT in order to uh, facilitate some of these requirements. You should make sure that you know what you're looking for because DibCAC themselves have publicly said it's not giving you the right information by default. And I thought that was a very valuable piece of information from Nick. I mean, so even when you, and, and I don't know how much you've played around with chat G GPT, but you know, I obviously bit. I'm curious, you know, like I, I want to know um, oh, before you type in your input to be evaluated or to, for whatever output that you want, there is columns and one of the columns, one of the warning blocks says can provide inaccurate information. And the playing around that we did was like, Hey, describe the cybersecurity maturity model certification program to us. And yeah. the return that we got was five levels. Yeah. It can only, it can only generate, it can only generate predictive information based off the information that it's trained on. And within mm -hmm. this space, a lot of the information that's out there is bad and or wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it generally produces, it reproduces and, and riffs on already bad information. I do agree with Nick's overall perspective on the tool is that if you know what you're looking for, it can be a great tool for sure. making you do it faster, right? Or helping you do it better. But if you don't know what you're looking for, it is not a good starting point. And the man just went through and did a whole session about people yeah. not knowing what they're looking for. It's... Right. Yeah. The session's really good. We'll get all those clips uploaded from, from Nick and from Stacy, but I thought the event was great. And, I did too. Uh, man, a ton of stuff happened this month. I think this one went a little longer than we were anticipating, but, uh, but we'll see what happens in April. How do you contain excitement, Jacob? Um, you can't. That's why you get on two and a half hour podcasts, right? Yeah. I, this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is my excited face. <laughs> like your surprise face. <laughs> this is my, I'm about to get off of here and go watch congressional hearings face. I can't wait. I got them all queued up right now. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, another one in the books. Uh -huh.